Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. <laughs> how is uh, how are things? Where are you stationed right now? Chicago. Yeah, I am back in Chicago after a little trip to Cleveland, Ohio. Nice. How was that? Solid. <laughs> um, wondering what's uh, after you're done going through all of sports gambling Twitter by next Wednesday. What's next for the <laughs> TBWC pod? Uh, I think probably a long hiatus. It's it's quite exhausting making the podcast because when you make a three hour podcast, it takes three hours to record and at least three hours to edit because I just have to listen to it, make sure I didn't say anything stupid. And uh, six hours is a lot, so they're a little bit time yeah. consuming, and there's not many people left. I think it was a good run of like intro, kind of get to know you on some people, which um, isn't especially interesting, especially because most people have the exact same story. So it's more fun yeah. when there's something else to talk about, which will be good when um, sports happen. Because right now there's just the same, you know, Twitter things to talk about. Whether or not RAS was front running customers, the, <laughs> the key thing to talk about at all times. What are your feelings on the uh, ethics of touts? Let's do about <laughs> an hour there. Yes, that sounds great. <laughs> um, so as I mentioned earlier on a podcast with. Um, Jordoga, the, pre, the, the most recent one to launch. Um, Time and C and I actually worked at the same company right out of college. So we met right after we both graduated and neither of us were really, were really um, involved in sports betting much and we were just trading options together. How, um, how common is it for people to trade options where you're from? Is that like a random job? Did you know what you were getting into? Were you gambling like uh, in high school and stuff? Yeah, new zero people. Um, so I didn't listen to the Jordoga pod, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating some stuff. But yeah, no, that's I right. mean, 
I had a random engineering major in college. Um, and all I knew was that I hated it. Like I worked in a factory for one summer and it was terrible. Um, so yeah, like I applied to this finance job that had a lot of buzzwords and looked kind of cool. Um, and when they brought us in for the interview, they had us like gamble and play like dice games. So that was really cool. So I was pretty hooked. Um, what, uh, what sorts of yeah. dice games? <laughs> so weird explaining it to you because you played them as well. But uh, yeah, a big part of the interview at our first job was they would put you in a room with seven other people who were also applying for this job. And you would basically trade the sum of three dice rolls like they were a stock, like buying and selling it. And like, this doesn't seem that complicated because it's really easy to come up with what the right number is. The wrinkle would be that there were some traders who worked at the firm trying to throw you off by buying a number that was way higher than fair and then going higher and higher and basically seeing who could trade this three dice roll number to make the most money. Like, who could get on, like, sell the most of this dice roll above fair and buy the most below. I don't know if I explained that well. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, and it would, I think it depends on the group. And because I've had similar interviews in similar um, settings, whether like how complicated they can get. Because sometimes like you could trade options on it or the dice might not be fair or it might not be exactly dice, but it's like an unknown number of sides. Um, the one that, you're describing though does, is kind of like the simplest one where it would just be whatever fair is times three, just trade around that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that like, I liked sports a lot as everyone that comes on the pod seems to like sports check was bad at it, gambling on it in college check. Like this interview was new to me and like kind of sparked some stuff that I like, I liked numbers and I liked working, you know, like trying to find an edge, even though I didn't know how to find one yet. So uh, when I got this job offer, I kind of jumped at it. Yeah. Um, Do you think that that is a good way to interview for options traders? (sighs) That's an interesting question. Somewhat, yeah, because I think like dealing with introduced unknowns was a decent part of that job. And there's a little bit of that in there. Is it like the end all be all like, Absolutely not, because there were certainly people that in like you and I's interview class that just like memorized what you should do kind of at every step and didn't actually know what they were doing, but then got hired. If that makes sense, like someone would just be like, okay, like what's the chance that you're right here? Like that, you know, you're saying it'll be under 27 when the fair value is 19 and like somebody had just gone through and memorized all those probabilities. It doesn't really mean you're going to be a good options trader. Yeah. I think it was mostly good because it really, really easily identifies like who has common sense and who does not. But um, I think it over rewards like confidence and talking where someone who's like super shy might just not say anything or someone who doesn't quite know how it works um, will be bad. Whereas if you explained it to them for three minutes, they would instantly be as good as you. So I think if it was like slightly different and addressed those, it would be, really, really good. But uh, yeah, it's pretty solid. And it's fun because it sells the lifestyle kind of or the the work lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, I can't hate too much. It worked on me. 
Yeah. Um, okay, so we start options trading. How into sports betting were you at that time? Um, like kind of not really at all. I watched a lot of sports with friends. Um, I knew how gambling worked, and I would like to gen bet on stuff just because like betting was fun, not for a lot of money. Uh, and I think I also just from reading about it. I knew that like nobody won. Like I wasn't under some illusion that like, oh, I'll like definitely bet Dolphins minus three and like I'm gonna crush it. But I think I thought like literally nobody won. Like it's impossible. The books just like know what the number is and you're just gonna be wrong. Um and I think you kind of like there was some conversation we had at some point where you were like, No, like you can win if you get good enough at this which kind of sparked all this probably. Interesting. Um, so I guess that the same dice question, do you think that that if you were, if you were like starting a sports betting firm, what do you think you would like set your interview up as, you know what I mean? Like same sort of thing. We have a firm, we're trying to make some money, but instead of options trading, it's sports betting. Uh, what do you think we should set the interview as? For like kids who are new to it, I guess, because it wouldn't really apply if you were just trying to get people who are good. Yeah, I've in thinking about this, what I've always come back to is like take some subject that whoever you're interviewing has domain knowledge about and have them walk you through what modeling some aspect of this would look like, or maybe not even modeling, but if they had to get what like the best fair number was for that, like how would they do it? And the people that are going to be able to think on the spot and walk you through, especially if you don't have domain knowledge, like what it would look like to model that, I think are going to do really well. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if I'm explaining that well, but like no, if you someone, are. I don't know, if someone's super into chess, for example, if they can walk you through, you know, like I want to determine who the best chess player in the world is. And obviously that already exists, but if they could walk you through coming up with something that sort of looks like ELO, they're probably going to be able to do okay sports betting. Yeah. What, um, what do you think of ELO? Is that some, I, I think someone I talked to earlier on the podcast, I forget who said that everyone starts with some sort of ELO based thing, which um, I've never done anything that's really similar to ELO. I would say, is that something that, is similar to how you think about things or what is your, what is your opinion on ELO? Yeah. I mean, I've used it for really basic stuff before. It's a good jumping off point. I think just cause I think it's sort of what your brain does naturally. Like you have expectations for an event and then you try and figure out after you've seen the event, like what that should adjust your priors to. Um, I don't pretend to be an expert on it, but I, I mean, I don't use it for anything right now. But it's, it seems to be a good way to think about things. I know that it's made to look really cool in the social network. So The business we've chosen's favorite movie, The Social Network. Um, number one. I don't know. Not number one, but pretty good one. Up there. Okay. Do you, what, what stories do we have about option trading firms? Do we want to say any of those? Are there any good ones that are kind of interesting or applicable or anything? Um, Should we just like explain how, an option, how options trading works in like five or six minutes? Yeah, I think we can, I think there's probably this notion out there of what working at a trading firm or working at a hedge fund looks like and the monetary prospects behind it. And it's probably very over glamorized. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess it would just depend. I mean, on yeah, what we can just talk. We could just what it say like what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Why don't you lead it off? Why don't you Why don't you explain how the options market works, and I will interject <laughs> and stuff. Oh, that just that small thing. <laughs> like how the options market works in terms of what? Just just I don't like, know. In terms of just how it work, how every aspect of it works. <laughs> how the where does the trading take place who are the people trading yeah how does the trade happen uh what does the trade mean what are they trading um is it different between stocks is it the same between stocks uh i don't know i guess the what time yeah is okay the schedule like when do things open what are limits like i guess sort of like applying the sports betting structure to options trading yeah for sure so it's a lot of it is very similar to sports betting in that there, if you're good, you're betting on basically a distribution, right? Like options are centered around the distribution behind stock movements, not like predicting the direction as much. Um, and it's the same in that there are markets that vary wildly in their limits and how liquid they are and how many people are paying attention to them and the information disparity. So I think there are something like 5,000 tradable stocks with options on them. Um, And I think it's more like 2,000. I'll just, I'll just correct. But uh, yes, correct. Is it? I think it's like 22,000, 2,200 or something, but I'm not sure. I haven't traded options in like a year. So your (laughs) information is better than mine. Yeah. Okay. Um, But yeah, so it's, whatever it's a few thousand and you're probably going from like the lowest end of the spectrum where there might be 10 options trades per day uh to the highest end which is like the companies everyone knows like apple or tesla or amazon where you're pretty far into the hundreds of thousands of options getting traded per day why are there Um, more options being traded on amazon and tesla than something else um I mean, I think for a lot of reasons. So options are used, uh, like options trading firms are basically trying to set a fair price and just position themselves to profit off off of having better fares in the market. But options can also be used as hedging instruments for people whose concerns are in much more liquid markets, like pure stock trading. Um, And hedge funds and mutual funds and all that are going to just be paying attention more to Apple or have positions in Apple. So they are going to be involved in those options trades a lot. Um, And I mean, a lot of the same stuff, it's like why there's a lot bigger handle on the NFL than there is on, you know, a random college basketball game because people know the company. Um, the information is out there for more people to consume. The companies are larger. Um, so there's not going to be as much like really weird stuff going on. Um, feel free to jump in and add anything else if I'm missing anything. I guess I'd like to interject that. I feel like the, the word hedge fund is so misused that I would sure. just like to clarify that hedge funds for anyone listening is someone that trades or bets with other people's money. Um, so it is in a sense like a tout, whereas there are people that do it with their own money. And those are usually called like prop firms. And there are very rich people that do it with their money. Um, so I feel like that distinction doesn't get made enough when it is very real. 
Yeah, for sure. The one caveat I would add to that is the listenership of this podcast has an idea of the word tout. And regardless of your feelings on that, like hedge funds exist because the costs and the barriers to entry of the finance market are much higher than sports betting. And so it's very difficult to do without outside money. Like it's not that these people who start hedge funds don't like never have any edge. It's that in order to express that edge, you just need other people's money sometimes. Totally. Yeah. The, the barrier to entry in stocks is um, significantly higher than in sports. So yeah, that's kind of like a little bit how the options market works. Um, and I guess, so to talk a little bit about how to price them, like I'm going to use like pricing options is a little bit like looking at college basketball, knowing that like Ken Palm or some of those other services exist in that the basic, basic, basic model for how to price options was solved like 40 years ago, pretty much, uh, like given some inputs, this, this formula, it's called the black Scholes model is going to get you fairly close to what the price should be. Like, obviously not all the way there and obviously better models exist. But that is kind of the basis on how everyone who's trading options, like just not to hedge, but trading them with a fair price in mind is going to price them. You have anything to add there? I mean, I don't know. I think that, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have that much to add. It's, yeah, it's different in that how similar everything is. Like things you can think like, oh, I have the same sort of model for these college football games or these college basketball games but like the games are very distinct. Whereas with stocks, like they're actually with stock options specifically, they're actually just all the same, you know, like the stock is nearly irrelevant um, almost all the time, Yeah, which is but, kind of, I mean, kind of weird. And they're also, you know, you can have the same algo for all of them and it can very, it much more uniformly applies. I feel like. Yeah. But that's also going to come from the fact that the sports betting, like the games that you're betting on, there's just always imperfect information. There's always someone more informed because the market's not completely efficient. Whereas like stock derivatives, the stocks that those derivatives are on operate in a nearly perfectly efficient market. So like you can apply the same thing widely because the underlying asset has been mostly solved for. Yeah. Is there anyone whose stock advice you've been taking on Twitter this break? (laughs) That's I think been the like one area where I've gotten snarky with some other members of gambling (laughs) Twitter is on their like stock advice, which it's just like you and I will text each other back and forth sometimes. Like if so-and-so like knows that, Oh, like the market's going down, like these people are all idiots. It's like, well, if that's true and you know, the market's going down, you don't even have to have that much money to become insanely rich one year from now, like private Island, enough money for generations rich. And yeah, none of them really, are. So. You can really run it up pretty quick <laughs> if you knew something was coming um, in the options trading landscape. Yeah, I think what's so funny too is that options trading is the same thing as sports betting, where sports betting, like even the best bettors in the world, if they just add like, you know, six or seven cents of juice to what they're betting, it's like, oh, all of a sudden I don't win anymore. Um, options trading is the same way where most of the game is like just getting the best price in whatever way that you can do yeah, it. For sure. So options trading is, there's even people who it's almost like 
bum hunting accounts where you can find stale lines or off market stuff. That stuff does exist to not like off market, but to an extent off market um, in the options trading marketplace. There's there's most people that make money trading options don't even have fares really. Um, it's much less sophisticated in terms of setting fares because everyone just kind of uses the same baseline fare. You assume it's fair and just trade around it. Yeah, right. As the market gets more efficient, like you can just kind of rely on the market for fair, which is a weird self-fulfilling prophecy, but is definitely true in options. Yeah. Any, um, any notable option stories, options trading stories? I told one about on a previous podcast about Locke. I don't know if you remember that, but um, when they that Edith Ramirez FTC woman announced they were going oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. to sue Locke, and I was like looking at it for eight minutes when it was unched, and it went down like fifty percent or something. Yeah, I think it's just a uh, like people who don't have any experience with it. The tails that you don't really see in sports betting, especially because sports betting so binary for most of it, are just they're truly insane. Um, yeah, and it's because you're always trading the tails. Like in sports betting, you're always trading just the spread or the total, the 50 percentile. Options trading is all about the tails, and your position is always changing. You know, if you bet over 134 in sports and the total goes to 139, it's like awesome. My bet's more likely to win. But in options trading, it's like I yeah. now have a different bet on. And so you're constantly yeah. managing all these different bets. So it's, yeah, it's completely different from sports betting in that respect. Yeah, that's actually a really good way to think about it. If you are listening to this and don't have any options experience, like think about what you go through betting a game if you actually watch games. I know some people don't. And like at what point you would sell out your bet if it like was a completely fair market. Like there's no juice. You can sell it out for fair. Like, well, like games you think like have a chance to be 20 points off, you're going to be way more willing to bet those because there's some chance that you could sell it out way higher in game. Yeah. Um, it's like the constant management of the positions. Um, yes. something totally different that you like have to be, the position is always changing in terms of its risk. Um, yeah. Which is kind of weird. Just the interesting thing to think about is like you or I, or anyone who did this, like, you basically have to take into account some risk that you're going to lose like a large percentage of what would be considered your bankroll. If like this random one in, you know, 5,000 event happens like nearly every day. Um, which is yeah, probably I not mean, something that really happens in sports. That's why options trading I think is more fun because you just have, it's like, Oh, like, imagine if every game was Cal State Northridge won by 37 instead of 31 or 48 or 13. You know, like they're all such distinct outcomes and there's so many games every day and there's always crazy stuff happening in one of them. Um, there's just like more action and more craziness and the outcomes are all different amounts. It's not just like everything's a bad beat and nothing's a bad beat in the same sense. Yeah. And also why I think there's been like this little flood of people who don't really know what they're talking about, talking about how the market isn't efficient. And like, this is why it's really dumb because if sports were like that, like people would be tweeting that stuff too. Like some NFL team that's minus six wins by 30, like, and you go fucking broke. If you had the other side, like people would be freaking out about that too, but it's just a distribution. Like that's how it works. 
So, so you were working in options trading and now you're in sports betting. How, yeah. how do you go from working full-time options trading to now working full-time sports betting? Yeah. So this is kind of what we broached on, but never really got into. Options trading is definitely cool and fun, but the career opportunities that exist to options trade are much more like working in any other corporate field. Like you're normally working for people, you're using other people's money. You can definitely make good money, but it's really hard to make like great money. Um, and the life balance is decent in that like the hours I think both of us worked were not crazy, but you kind of have to always be there. Like if you take a day off and you have positions on and they go against you, like that's the ball game or like something insane happens, like you have to be there to trade it. Um, so I guess like I can do a deeper version of, of my story. So we worked at the same options firm for a couple of years. Um, and it's a good starting place because it's, you can get a lot of responsibility as a really young person. Uh, but then after that kind of tough to really make it to like a high responsibility position. So both of us left, both of us went to work for hedge funds, which is like a little bit of a different ball game. Um, Cause there you're not always trying to like, you are trying to make the most money, but you kind of have to do it in a way that you can explain to your investors. So they want to keep investing. Um, which I think you would agree that that was your experience in the hedge fund industry as well. Yeah. Um, the hedge fund industry, I think it varies a lot because for sure it's kind of the same thing as imagine if someone was touting because they could beat, um, NFL player props or college basketball player props. So they just like couldn't get down enough themselves. So they touted for that reason versus if they were betting on Apple options. So I think depending on the scale of your strategy, how much you need the money, like how much you're invested, you know what I mean? I feel like there's a lot of yeah. wide range and the range I worked on was kind of the more like snake oil, um, like just trying to get the money into the pot to take the fee on it every year. So our, yeah. our firm was a little bit crazier than most, but I think yeah. most firms and are think, like that, where they're they're just a tout trying to sell you something, and they're trying in the same way that the Action Network, like they actually don't think they're frauds, you know. Like when people chirp at that, um, whatever that girl that writes there, um, she always responds like, "I'm not a tout, I'm not a tout," you know, because they actually believe it because they don't think they are, you know. So it's they're yeah. trying to do good, they're just so incompetent that um, they don't. Yeah, I would. I'm also, I'm approaching this from a bad way because generalizing hedge funds is one thing is stupid because there are so many that do so many different things. Like any generalization is not going to be totally accurate. But um, yeah, so the one I worked at, I worked there for a couple years. Um, didn't really like who I was working for or the direction it was going in and had been sports gambling at what would be considered like kind of a professional level for like a year while I was working there. So I left and started sports betting on my own. Um, probably in a different spot than most of your podcast guests. Cause I've only been what would be considered a true professional as in, this is my only source of income for like coming up on a year. So it has not been that long. And three of those months have had zero sports. <laughs> so yeah. in terms of, at a professional level. So which sports were you betting when you were working and also at a professional level? When were you doing the stuff? Were you able to check the stuff at work? Like, how does that work? Because I wasn't able to sports bet at a professional level like that until I 
had left working. You know what I mean? Like I had to be doing it all the time. Were you able to automate a bunch of stuff or what were you doing? Um, I mean, I was definitely, I was working on it at work a little bit. Um, like monitoring the stuff is not that hard because most options trading setups involve like six to eight computer screens. So you could definitely sneak Don Best into one of them. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely lacking too. Like part of the reason that I would leave and, and do it on my own is that I felt like I was giving like 80% of the effort it needed and not 100. But yeah, I mean, I was betting like, and I still am like, mostly betting smaller league stuff so definitely college basketball uh wnba uh every major pro like exhibition league which like i can see the laughter coming from most of the seville crowd um <laughs> but uh what are the what are the major exhibition leagues? so like There's summer league and spring, spring training, training nba summer league nfl preseason is there um, wnba summer league no, <laughs> I think that's too far. That's too far down the rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, doing these in like an actual, like, anal like I think one of your previous podcast guests, Chuck Shoved, had talked about like there is an there is a smart way to bet on spring training, and it's to take information about who's playing and like actually convert that into a decent number. And the market is very bad, so. Like, yeah, it's I still mean, hard to win, but very doable. I think that the whole thing about hating on small markets is, I don't think, very useful. I think it's mostly hating on small money would be useful. Because if you can get down money on the market, it's kind of like, who cares? Unless your your goal is to just beat the best other handicappers. Because like, on Summer League and Spring Training, like I have gotten down a lot of money on those games before. Is that something where you run into limits on sizing frequently? Or what's the sort of sizing that you can get down on those sorts of games regularly? So you definitely run into sizing issues, but like at a level where you can make a decent amount of money doing it anyway. So I think like if we just use spring training, so I think like near post, bet online was doing like 2,000 sides and 1,000 totals this last March. And like Chris and Pinnacle were less, but not much less, probably like 1,500. Uh, and then, I mean, obviously every paperhead ever is just like 500, 500 standard, or if you have bigger limits, they were bigger limits. Uh, but so, I mean, for people who are betting like huge, that's probably not enough. But for me, I mean getting down like four or 5,000 on a spring training side was not that hard. Uh, so, I mean, you can do pretty well doing that. Yeah. It's, it is kind of crazy how much you can get. I remember I was tailing some of the stuff and I think at one point pinnacle was taking two grand limits and I had a, a pinnacle copycat that was also taking two grand limits. Yeah. It's, and that's just a one, I think you could get rebets and yeah, most places take 500. I think if you want to bet on that too, I'm not sure why, but I, I feel like bookies are willing to take the action. Maybe there are a lot of degens who just bet on it. Do your friends bet on it? Because I'm under the impression that you have a lot of friends who kind of bet degenerately. Is that correct? Kind of like the, <laughs> the three-man weave type, if you will? Yeah, I mean, I think that just comes... Like, I went to a Big Ten school. Um, I went to Ohio State. I had a lot of friends who were into sports. 
And I just think like coming from that, people like to bet on sports, don't know what they're doing and, you know, don't mind like throwing a little money on it. So, I mean, definitely, I think that's a thing that gets like some action from people. And it's also, I mean, if you get people that fall into like the tout trap kind of stuff where they like that, that, that is like the easiest thing to get touted because the lines move so much. It's like really easy to be two minutes late and look like you have 50 cents of CLV or something. So if like, if you didn't know any better and you were just like looking on Twitter for people that bet sports and look like they know what they're doing, you could easily find a bunch of people betting spring training that look like they're super sharp. Is there any, uh, any culprits on Twitter? Um, of that? <laughs> I don't think I really need to call out anybody. It's like, it's the, it's the dregs that probably don't need any name recognition. Okay. Okay, I got you. Um, so how do those games mechanically get moved? Is that like some bookie sees a bunch of sharp spring training in his account and he goes and hits bookmaker? Is it some small limit better hits the opener a few times? Like who are the people that are moving the market and how does that actually happen that it's going to move? Um, I mean, they're, the screen limits are definitely big enough that I think people that reasonably know what they're doing are probably just whacking the screen because like so these lines probably get posted at i don't know 8 a.m central if i'm remembering correctly and And when are the games so there's two slates there's so there's spring training in uh florida and in arizona so the florida games are at noon cst and the arizona games are at 3 p.m cst i believe so and the lines might come out earlier, actually. It might be like 6 or 7 a.m. But um, an hour or two after they get put up, you get lineup information trickling out. Um, and it's, I mean, this is not all that complicated. Like, it's good to have some sort of model to know how much players are worth. But it's, are all the good guys playing and pitching or are they not is the crux of it. It's not like that complicated. Um and so then, like, you'll see the screen start moving when lineup stuff starts coming out. Uh, so probably they come out around, eight, like, and then the games go yeah, eight or nine noon. in the morning. And do they play every day? Yeah. Damn. So how long is this? Like, what you can get a you can get like a hundred bets in in the spring trading season, or fifty, or seventy five, or something? Uh, it's probably closer to yeah. I, I mean, I could go look at my stuff. I don't really have it up, but it. I'm going to guess that I was getting down something like between sides and totals, like five to 10 bets per day. And it probably went on for, uh, in like a non coronavirus environment, it would have gone on for like three to three and a half weeks. So you can get, that's pretty I mean, good. Yeah. You can get a lot of volume. Yeah. Do you think that I that's mean, something that they'll expand? Like, is that going to keep getting more and more popular or is that kind of like a, a dying market? Or it just is what it is, and it'll stay the same. I have no clue. I don't. I mean, some people who I think you've interviewed have a better idea of what it looks like from the bookmaker side. I don't really. Um, although I could definitely see, like, people who are bad at this betting the price that is like sixty cents stale or something because they like see that all the good players are playing or they've watched it go like crazy or something like that. So I could imagine that. Like bookmakers are getting beat small on the initial moves, but still having on like a pretty enviable portfolio by the time these games go off. Yeah, that's what it's, it seems like it would be to me that 
if you put up a 30 cent wide market, like how can you not make money booking it? Even if the opener and the midpoint lines are terrible, like you still should probably be able to make a pretty good amount of money booking that. Yeah. And I mean, they're good at finding and like, that's the type of work that whoever's working in the back office at some book or whoever's making a line can do pretty well. Like I'm not much better than they are at figuring out what the line should be. Um, so like they can move lines pretty fast too. And there are definitely a lot of bets from getting like fractional fills. Yeah. So where are you better at uh, bookmakers at figuring out where fair should be? Um, that's a good question. I think, I don't know exactly, but I suspect that uh, I know pretty well just the ebb and flow of a spring training game like who like if these players are starting how long are they going to play um and then what does that mean you should adjust so like what does a line look like if a triple a team plays a major league team for three and a half innings and then for four innings it's kind of close and then for two innings it looks like something else um I, I think like I can ballpark that calculation a little better, but I mean, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I know that I beat the market, but obviously I don't know exactly why. How do you think that they come up with the number? Do you think that they're just kind of like throwing anything out there and they, it'll get better nah, pretty quickly or does someone have it. like an idea of what fair is? Or he like, do you think he's like comes up, spends an hour coming up with fair and then posts his mid market up there? I think there are definitely some, there are some quirks to like who plays and when they're already pre-figured out. So like every time a lineup is released, it's not always information. Like there are times where it is priced in before the line comes out that one team will play all of their good players and one team will not. And that's just how it plays out. So I think that they probably do the best job they can at figuring out what those lineups are going to look like and then putting out a number. Um, and then, I mean, sometimes there's just surprises, but again, like they're going to adjust fast enough usually that they're okay. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like you could just kind of throw something up there. Yeah, and the information comes out so, like the lineups, they kind of seem like they're coming out almost randomly or it's there's not like one within the source, you know? window sure yeah it's like yeah. you got a monitor and i think this guy is probably going to tweet it out and this beat writer tweeted it out uh it's kind of inconsistent yeah. to where lines are going to be moving and even when you check the off screens during it like some of my accounts will be one of them will be minus 140 plus 110 the other one will be minus 170 plus 140 like things are kind of yeah. all over the place and one group will pound it in one place to where maybe you can even arbit with a different account you have. It's, it's a pretty crazy universe and I guess nothing else is going on. What other sports are happening at that time? For some reason, it so feels like bookies take big limits of that on spring training. So it's pretty busy time for college basketball, but it ends up lining up. If you're like, if you're grinding college basketball, you're, start date every morning is around the same time when you want to be doing this stuff. So it just kind of lines up with like staring at the screen and monitoring Twitter and like all this other stuff that you would do once you already have a good number for a college basketball game. Uh, but other than college basketball, I don't think there's, I mean like NBA and NHL are going on too. So it's, I don't know. I mean, I think 
bookies are probably getting a lot of action would be the only reason they would take a lot on this and not care. Yeah. Um, so college basketball is something that you're betting regularly. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't only bet gimmick leagues. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Although they are yeah, fun. So. And you picked you pick the best ones to bet because, I mean, your gimmick leagues are bigger than some of the, quote, real leagues that I play. Some weeks, you know, golf makes it seem like Pinnacle's 250 at post and Bookmaker lists nothing. And, you know, Rufus is sleeping sometimes. Yeah, but I feel like golf matchups are very liquid. It's just that they often are a large source of edge when you bet golf is outrights and those are weird to move money on. Yeah. Yeah. The, the matchups are usually good. I mean, bookmaker, those Rufus numbers are so good that they take 20 K. You know? <laughs> I am, I am uninformed about this controversy despite seeing this joke 27 times on Twitter. <laughs> so I don't know how deep I want to wade here. <laughs> no, I'm just mainly trolling. Cause uh, as we're recording this podcast, there's been a recent tweet saying something to the effect of, what are you talking about? You're delusional. Um, I might try and craft a response like people that matter don't believe you or something along those lines, but that's Got the you. crux of it. <laughs> okay. So I think I, I have the debate that Rufus used to set golf lines for bookmaker is the allegation. Rufus says he does not. And this has been thrown back and forth and volleyed one at the other, like just constantly for the last two years. Yeah, well, it's been a pretty exponential progression, which culminated, in my opinion, with Abnormally Distributed, who Chekshove mentioned was a good follow, um, tweeting out, I, I didn't even follow him, I just saw it. He was complaining, why are the golf lines not up? And he said, where the fuck is Rufus? Well, like, I need these round four golf lines. And Favre retweeted it. And, you know, that's about as yeah. big as it gets for the business we've chosen. Yeah. How soon after Favre tweets do you normally see it? Are we talking like, I'm basically, I'm like 30 seconds at a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's pretty quick. Usually I'd say I'm usually on Twitter. If I'm, if I'm near a computer, Twitter's usually up and I'm following someone or trying to figure out if someone's going to play or something. Um, uh, yeah. The Favre, the Favre tweets are pretty good. Although I, I'm confused why he stopped doing the golf outrights blog, you know? I would have loved to see that keep going or some sort of, he seems a little bit more distant, a little above gambling Twitter now. I guess well, he's just so he, rich that he doesn't need the approval of us, uh, us poor men. He, he had to give up the game and leave space for an up and coming young golf blogger to maybe, you know, fill his shoes. <laughs> that, that is a good point. There, there are competing blogs out there. Whoever that heard. may be. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, it is, it is nice doing a golf blog where, I can post some of like intricate analysis at a high level of the culture of golf, the betting of golf, the playing of golf, and just like the mechanics of how it all works, swings, angles. Like I can speak about all this stuff and I write about it on a blog that one person reads maybe. It's just, but it's kind of <laughs> nice to write it and put it out there, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's very cool analysis if you, like, I play a lot of golf, and I'm not very good, but I like it, and I learn things about golf if, I mean, some about gambling, but more about golf when I read it. You're fairly good at golf, though, because oh. when you were in high school, what was your peak handicap? You were down to, like, a, a two or a three at some point, right? No, not that good, but probably, like, a six. Okay. So pretty. You played in high school, but I'm also horribly core. I'm horribly coordinated, so when I don't play, 
I just get really bad. Um, so yeah, I'm nowhere near that now. I'm probably like a, I don't know, 12 or something. Yeah. I haven't touched a club in a long time, so I'm nervous to find out, but I might, I might try and play golf this week. See if I can, uh, swing a club. It's tough because I mentioned this before and I think it's underappreciated. There really are so many people that like the amount of people from Illinois around my age or from my age in the country who ended up being really good by the time they were pro were guys that like weren't good when they were 15. I think it's really different from a lot of sports where the good guys are mostly good from a young age. A lot of the really good golfers, even if they're good by the time they're 23 are really not good um, at younger ages because there's a lot of how much you practice and it attracts a lot of loners and a lot of people that like don't have anything better to do, but there's a lot of guys that get very good that weren't even good in college. You know what I mean? Or like we're okay. Yeah. In college. If it's, you had to put it weird. on a spectrum, if you had to put it on a spectrum of like what percent innate skill, like coordination or feel or whatever it is versus just like hardcore work ethic, what percent would each be for golf? I think it's like, like making it pro. I think it's like 90% reps, 85% reps. I think it's almost all reps. As long as you start by like age 14 and ideally by like age five, the sooner you touch a club, the better almost universally um, in terms of how good you will be at golf. I mean, I know a lot of kids who like hate golf and (laughs) hate their parents because they like made them play at a young age. But if you want to make the kid good at golf, um, I think putting a club in the hands as fast as possible is the best course of action. My parenting advice on the, the business we've chosen. <laughs> We're foraying into a lot of different topics here. I like it. Yeah, but I mean, like I knew some kids who were, I was so much better than when I was like 16 or 17 that by the time we were 19 or 20, it was like, holy crap. Like I, there was a kid who the guy I took lessons from um, coaches, t- two guys in the nationwide tour right now. And one of them is really, really good. But at the time, the kid was so much younger than me that I was still better than him. He was like 10 and I was 15. So I was still barely better than him. Although now he's, he's going to be on the PGA Tour next year. And there was another guy my age who was just terrible, but was always there. And even when we were like sophomores in high school, you know, he like barely made the sophomore team at his crappy high school. And I was like one of the best players on one of the best schools in the state. And then by the time we're seniors, we're like both kind of the same. And then by the time we're like freshmen and sophomores in college, I'm like, you know, a plus one. And he's like winning college golf tournaments. (laughs) And he was just crazy. He had no friends. He was really, really weird. And I'm not like a social butterfly with a ton of friends, but these guys are like, don't have one friend in the world just play golf all day long, like Bryson DeChambeau type stuff. And he just got yeah. so insanely good. He almost won the Illinois Open one year. You know, there's guys can just get crazy good, crazy fast. Um, but how many listeners does his podcast have? <laughs> I mean, I'm. if you take plus 40, uh, you, you win no matter what. So, Wow. So that's, that's probably a difference probably from any other professional sport with golf. Like I can't think of anything that's like that. I don't know that many sports that well, but 
There's definitely doesn't seem some, like anything else. There's some natural talent because the the practice angle does not explain why Justin Thomas, Ricky Fowler, Jordan Spieth, Tiger Woods, um, Tommy Fleetwood, Rory McIlroy, Patrick Cantlay, Colin Morikawa, why are all these guys the best in the world from their from age six? So it doesn't account for that. That might the thing I've just described, where it's all about reps, might only apply to the past, where not a lot of people play golf. You got to be rich. Um, you got to have like a nice family that's like willing to just let you go play golf. It could be that just the people that played golf were kind of lazy and rich, and there weren't that many of them. That if you worked just kind of hard, you could be better than them. So there's definitely some natural ability, and I've played with guys better than me that it feels like I could never get better than. But for sure, golf, way more than any other sport, um, is just only about reps. Because there's just no physical difference. Even if you're, you know, the strongest guy in the world, like Rory McIlroy isn't the strongest guy in the world, but he's very, very strong. And Dustin Johnson is, you know, six foot four and fairly strong. Brooks Kepka, he can bench pass, you know, 350 pounds. These guys, they're not quite NFL linebackers, but they're pretty strong. They're not that much longer than Justin Thomas, who's just kind of like a regular guy, or Ricky Fowler, who's a regular guy. Like, yeah, these guys go to the gym, I guess, but at the same level that you and I do, you know. Um, so even between those two groups, it's like 15 yards of difference. You know, it's it's not really that much. Yeah. So, so there's almost no physical anything that can separate you very much. But there must be something, whether it's a hand-eye coordination or a feel, a touch, because even guys like Justin Thomas that aren't that good around the greens, they're still really good. You know, they're better than me. Like when I was good, my best skill was being around the greens and I had like really good touch. He's like, quote, bad at that, but he's still better than me, you know, like by a lot. Yeah. At some point, you've probably practiced every chip shot you're ever going to run into, like basically. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure. It, it would be interesting in the next... 50 years as more people have access to golf and more people play golf like what sorts of people will be good at it um, i always remember that thing from the sports gene where they talked about how a lot of baseball players have very good sight and there was some crazy guy i mean it was mostly anecdotal and a narrative but there was some guy who ran the mets in the 80s or 90s who was like if it's close in the late rounds let's just pick guys who have really good eyesight and mike piazza like had amazing eyesight and they drafted him on like the right. 50th round or whatever yeah, makes sense. I don't even remember what we were talking about, but that was a pretty good tangent. Oh, uh, I think we were talking about real sports I bet on. So oh, yeah. Get back to that. So college basketball was like the first thing I ever bet on. Back when we were working together, I started trying to screw around with stuff. And it like the way I do things, I think, is like I'd try and get a very small part of something down before moving on. So like I'd the first thing I ever figured out was like big 10 college basketball totals. And it like just kind of circles outward from there. I don't know if that's common with how other people approach sports, but I think a lot of people think that it's like, Oh, like I'm going to build a golf model. And now I have a fair for every golfer for this next tournament. Uh, definitely not how I operate or have ever. What were you um, also looking to do? So like, I didn't really know, like I had basically found out, and like looked through a bunch of stuff uh and had been turned on to some blogs and whatever that were telling me that like sports gambling was winnable and that like the number wasn't always perfect uh and i think at this point you had probably just started betting 
like definitely plus EV betting. And we're telling me like here and there, like, oh yeah, like I like bet this guy at this line and it, it's going to win because the line closed, you know, 10 cents better or something. Um, so yeah, I was just basically looking at how college basketball lines get made and was introduced to Ken Palm and kind of started just going off of there. Wait, um, you were introduced to Ken Palm after college? Not like I knew it existed, but I had never ever used it for anything except those like tournament probabilities that he has where he like really simulates out all the comments. Yeah. I just that is I only used it for that. Yeah. I, I feel like I used to go on Ken Palm in college. I was a subscriber before I was a gambler because I would like, I don't know, click on the team pages and look at the stats or whatever you do on KenPalm.com, you know, but I would go on it like not daily, but maybe four or five times a week, you know, most days. Yeah, it definitely was not my, uh, that was not my experience with it. Like, I think I was a much more mainstream level sports fan in college. Like I was interested in college basketball in March and when Ohio state was playing my alma mater, if my Twitter avatar doesn't give it away, <laughs> um, like started kind of looking into like how college basketball could be modeled and started getting totals that were beating the market by a little and went out from there. And now I think my college basketball stuff, I think is pretty good compared to like most people that are out there. I mean, somebody's probably better. Um, but I mean, I think I'm probably one of the top like 50 maybe out there betting this, but I could be way off. It's obviously really hard to know. Yeah. It's hard to know. I mean, it seems to me like you must be one of the top few, less than 50. There can't be 50 people, but I don't know. I mean, it's like, especially yeah, betting no college clue. basketball on the totals. It's just so illiquid that how many, like, I feel like if I was, you know, 10 times richer, I just would never bet a total ever. So maybe that's working in your favor. I don't know. I don't know what the people 10 times richer than me think though. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the reason that, I mean, the reason this exists is because college basketball doing it well is a grind. And I'm sure whoever out there who is in the upper echelon of this just doesn't want to deal with it. Yeah. Although I think I do. I mean, I generally like I left a job and wanted to do this because I generally kind of enjoy that grind a little bit. Like, I would rather be grinding doing that than other things. So I don't know if that makes me different from other guests you've had on and stuff, but I find that grind to be kind of fun. What What does your typical day look like um, in the Chicagoland area during the college basketball season? Um, on non-Saturdays, it's probably the same where I'm, I don't know, I'm getting up pretty early because, like, what I don't know if are getting up rapid. Here? Six o'clock, seven o'clock, like eight o'clock? Yeah, probably like six. Because I don't know whether it's like RAS or whoever else it is, but some stuff starts really going early in the morning now. I don't know. People say it didn't used to be that way, but I have no frame of reference. Um, so stuff starts moving around, and I'm probably... Like, I have numbers that I've gone over and fine-tuned already when I wake up. Like, I usually do those the day before. Um, like, I'm not quite a hit-a-button level. Like, I hit a button, and then... I have to look at that number and make sure I like what all the inputs are, are saying. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, monitoring screens, trying to get down kind of any way you can. Um, cause limits are not big at all in the morning. Uh, so you kind of have to game that a little bit, the getting down. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was nitrogen anyway, like at the beginning? Because I only started using nitrogen right at the end and only late in the day because I was always in weird time zones. I was never awake during the beginning of U.S. betting. So what was what was nitrogen like from say six a.m. to four p.m. on a college basketball regular day? Uh, so I think nitrogen. I mean, they were bigger than everyone, especially on totals where they were putting up pretty obscene limits for a while uh but i would guess that they were i could be wrong here so fact check me but i would guess they were like 500 at like six in the morning but by 9 10 a.m they were probably two three thousand on anything yeah they were um, um they were pretty crazy, and I think that as sports have resumed over the last two weeks, I now understand their strategy, where whenever I log into Nitrogen, it takes me about eight CAPTCHA screens to where <laughs> like, I think I might never be able to get in, and they'll just have my Bitcoins forever. So I think they're just fine taking high limits on anything, because they might just lock you out um, if you ever win too much. <laughs> yeah, well... So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if other people did this, but on the day where all of the sports got shut down, I like I was a little worried and just pulled all my money out of all of those books. And Nitrogen certainly was not the friendliest about letting me get my money out. Yeah, they were um, they were crazy with college basketball limits. I remember one time in March, early March, I bet eight k on an NCAA extra game. Um, yeah. Those they were taking eight grand. I mean, Pinnacle was taking like 125, you know? I couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. I don't know if it was a type. I don't know what, I don't know if they wanted my action, but I was like, holy they crap, were... I can't believe I just realized this because I only started using them in like mid-February or early February. I didn't even realize, I'd heard such bad things. I kind of had a similar experience with Bet Online when I first started where I always heard bad things about them that I just assumed it was terrible and I never actually got an account. Yeah, I mean, so, well, part of it is I think that Nitrogen did end up marking some sharp people, but I didn't have an account that long before you, so mine wasn't marked, and it still had the huge limits. Um, but I had heard stories from other people that if they mark your account, like, your limits were one-tenth of the, like, insanity that they were dealing where there was, you know, five to 10,000 at game time, depending. Um, but yeah, I mean my experience has been similar to yours in that the general Twitter perception of some of these books has not been my experience, but I have no idea why that is. Like yeah, I've been I don't know surprised either. by that online and five dimes too. I've never, I, see, I've never even had an account with five dimes really. I had an account one time and they kicked me out or they lowered my limit to $1 like the first day because admittedly I was betting on some pretty weird stuff. But um, yeah, I always assumed that they were just terrible too. Maybe I'll have to check them out. I, I That's another one that I, I had signed up for fairly late into the game. So like just last year at some point, but it was fine. Like certainly not like getting limited or jobbed or anything like other people had reported. 
but again, that may just be anecdotal. So what have you been doing during the quarantine? Like the last few months without betting, what have you been working on? What have you been doing day to day? So I definitely beefed up some of the, the technology skills. Um, I did one of those coding boot camps just because my like my web scraping and uh, some of the newer machine learning libraries in Python just like wasn't anywhere, and it's it's just been something that I've kind of needed to add to the arsenal for a while. So I think a lot of people probably know that stuff already who are guests on this podcast, but. Um, and I think that also just comes from like where you and I started, like a lot of the trading firms, the coding stuff is all proprietary. Like it's a fake language that they built out. So like, that's where you're learning stuff and you don't like other analytical pursuits, you would be learning some of the more common languages at, you know, 21, 22. So I had never done that for whatever reason. Uh, yeah. So I, did think that most, then, I think most people, I don't think many of the previous podcast guests really are that good at that stuff because so much of it is publicly available and so much of it can be done by someone for fairly cheap that I feel like that skill is something that you can learn and it can be useful, but you can also buy it. Um, and it's not that expensive because yeah. I feel like, you know, fitting kind of the same stuff into some new algo versus some old, old algo is pretty easy to learn. And even if you can't learn it, which is not hard. Um, you can just kind of hire someone to do it. Yeah, I mean, I certainly had used some of the, you know, Upwork or Fiverr or whatever to hire, I don't know, somebody who was probably like a 12-year-old computer whiz to scrape gambling lines <laughs> for me. Yeah. But uh, it, some part of it is that it was a little more satisfying to do some of it myself, but also the customization aspect is nice just to be able to do it exactly how you want it. So been working on that. Uh, have not really bet at all. Um, I know like some people have found some really quirky PPH stuff to bet on. Um, I never really got involved in any of that. Um, and I tried to get good at poker. Like I wasn't really bad before. But, like, before quarantine, I, like, knew what was going on at a poker table. But if you had asked me what, like, correct opening ranges were, I would have had no idea, like, what you were even saying. Um, so, tried to get good at that, which has had diminishing returns. Were you, um, were you playing on ACR? Um, a lot of poker stars game like home game options just with like people i know or people who other people knew gotcha uh, i haven't deposited money because i've been told by everyone that beating like small stakes online poker against random strangers is impossible and i shouldn't try to do it but maybe that's wrong well i can confirm that the one two game we were playing on poker stars <laughs> was easier than the five cent <laughs> ten cent game i was playing on acr <laughs> yeah so i mean luckily had like enough bored people that i knew that were inviting me to play random poker games that uh and like i'm by no means like crushing it like making a lot of money off people like i'm what what just do you like think trying about, to learn enough what do you think about little? someone who crushes and makes a lot off people in games like that 
<laughs> um, I think as long as the other people in that game kind of know what they're getting into, there's not really anything wrong with it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I agree. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's with anything though. Like I, this gets into like, you know, sports betting stuff too. I think a lot of people who are like sharp betters, like occasionally will, if other people know that's what you do, like they will get texts or something occasionally like, Hey, like, what are you betting on? Or do you have anything? And then it gets weird with like, you have to explain to people what they're actually getting into. It's like, yeah, I bet on this, but like, you can't bet this anymore. And I wouldn't bet on it at this price. And so, I mean, that probably comes with anything. Yeah. Context matters. Yeah. So I guess my way to step around that question artfully. <laughs> um, okay. Let's do gambling Twitter versus finance. Do you want to try to explain EMH in better terms than is thought of by gambling Twitter? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what we were getting into before is just, it was, we definitely talked about it in that a lot of what I was seeing people who I consider smart and who make money betting on sports talking about how inefficient the stock market is. And it's just so wrong. It's just the same people who are saying like, well, the NFL market's so efficient. Like you could bet a million dollars 10 minutes before kickoff on Sunday. It's like, <laughs> what is going through your mind? You can bet a billion dollars at any moment the market is open on any stock. Yeah. Like, how do you think that's not more efficient? Like, and it's also what you're talking about too, that because the outcomes are not binary, like the tails get publicized. So in any market, even if it's perfectly efficient, you're just going to have wild tails that make people think it's not efficient, even though that's just what happens sometimes. What do you think that you would do day to day if you had $25 million more in your bank account? So a second 25 million? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, um, it's an interesting question because I think you've thought about this more than I have. It doesn't make that much sense to do nearly any of the stuff I do now because it's just like, it's a tough question. I think I probably would still try and sports bet some stuff that is just fun. Like to me, winning at sports betting is fun. So like, even though it might not make sense to be betting like single digit thousands of dollars on some game, I probably would do some of that a little, but I mean, when you have that much money, it makes so much more sense to take your edge and trade options, which is what we know how to do, or like invest in stuff. Like, do you think you'll I go think back when to you have that amount trading? of money? I think I would definitely try to. Um, it's just from what I've heard from you and other people, and it's just it's nearly impossible to do on your own unless you have a ton of money. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I'd say it's like, it's almost impossible to be worth your time if your net worth is like between one and $10 million. Like it's, I feel like you can't have it be worth your time. It's always going to be better to work somewhere else. If you had less or you had more, maybe, you know, more and more likely because you can buy a lot of the fixed costs, but yeah, it's just so expensive to trade, and the Don Best is so expensive, and 
getting accounts is expensive and it all has to be done legally. There's, there aren't any, you know, there's no nitrogen, there's no bet online. There's no, there's none of these quasi legal <laughs> accounts where you can bet <laughs> thousands of dollars. Like there's the legal ones where you can bet, you know, maybe if it's a good one, it's circa, you can bet like two grand and maybe it's an okay one at Westgate, you bet 500. Like these don't exist in options trading. It's only the legal way. So in a sense, it's a lot more sophisticated than sports betting, but in another sense, like William Hill does kind of still run the options market. It's very like in one place. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you what, what informed that opinion, but you went over it pretty good. Um, it's just, it's just to honest, too expensive have... to, it's too expensive to manage and the credit, you know, like, I can bet more than my bankroll yeah, that's on one thing. day on a bunch of stuff, even up to a pretty big bankroll. I mean, I don't have a large bankroll, but I'm sure it's larger than some people listening. And you can really get down a lot of money in sports and in options trading. You just can't. Um, you can take more risk than you have. Like You can definitely take enough risk yeah. to put yourself broke, but you it's much easier to go broke betting sports than it is trading options. Um, because you just can't get quite as much down and the fees are insane. And it comes to the point where like me, if I have really good fares and I want to bet on pinnacle, you know, I'm basically paying some amount of VIG to get down my money against whatever mid market is. And the option market, that price, if you're on your own with a low net worth is just really expensive. So I was losing when I was trading seriously, like with a lot of my net worth, I was losing something like 50, 60 bips a day, just putting positions on, you know, like you can't have yeah. positive day marks. You can't make money on the day. You basically have to lose money, putting the positions on and like eating the juice and then hoping over the next few days, your portfolio kind of makes money because you have edge, which it does. But even when it does, you have to overcome the juice. And even when you do, it's not that much to where, you can earn way more money depositing, you know, a hundred grand on bet online, a hundred grand on nitro than having like 200 grand in some other account. Like you can, you can make a lot more money betting the sports end of it until your net worth is really, really high where sports becomes yeah. limited. Because if you're, you know, million dollar bankroll, that's a 10 K 1% bet like that. And nitro is taking 10 K on college basketball games, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't know if this was your experience, but it would have it kind of seemed like to me is that scaling is a much more important part of trading options than it is in sports. In sports, you like you don't really scale. Every, you kind of get down when you get down and you hope that you did it at kind of the right time and got the best of the number. But in options, stuff is so fluid and changing all the time that you kind of need to have bullets. And it's tough when you have to put up a big chunk of your bankroll just to trade at, at, at the, at the beginning, if that makes sense. Like you can't really take a stand on stuff if it stays a little wrong. Yeah. It's, re it's just really hard. Um, it's just an expensive game to play and uh, there's kind of like no way around it unless you can, unless your fares are just so good that the markets are way off. Um, because all the technology to be alerted of like, because it's, it's different in sports. It's, it's very simple. You know, there's, there's lines that move very rarely. 
Um, occasionally they move on a book and Don best is usually within a few seconds, but in options, it's like things are fair 99.99% of the time. And occasionally for three seconds, there's some wrong price and you got to be the one yeah. to get it. Um, and that thing just doesn't happen in sports betting. Like maybe at some of the lowest levels with like novelty props or something, but um, it doesn't really exist. For sure. If we're ranking other podcasts you've done, the SIBO one was certainly number one for just pure entertainment value. <laughs> like yeah. I don't even want to go into like what I learned or how it made me better <laughs> or like anything about like the professional sports betting industry. But I was listening to this podcast while shopping for groceries alone and like laughing audibly loud in a grocery store aisle to some of the stuff he was saying. Which was parts unbelievable. Were the funny parts of that podcast? I forget. I'm tr- I'm trying to think back to like, I mean, he was telling a story about like talking to a guy on like a college football team to try and like get the edge on some random oh game, God. and then he took that which one, was plus seventeen or something. <laughs> But the part that was funny to me was like trying to ask this like random whoever he was like some defensive guy for like the offensive game plan to beat player props. And it. (laughs) Um, What do you think about fixes? What is your opinion on how frequently they happen in college basketball, the NBA, MLB, college football, whatever sports you're interacting with? What is your kind of take on fixes? Um, I'm probably way at the lowest end of the spectrum just because again, like coming from the industry we came from, like we've seen actual fixes and yeah, <laughs> like, I have seen a few fixes in the uh, options trading game. For those who don't know, um, most people that insider trade, the reason it happens so often is because almost everyone gets away with it. Um, it is almost always not caught. So there's a lot of insider trading and options. People do get caught, but um, they usually do not, unfortunately, for people that don't insider trade. Well, and I think the biggest thing that I was getting at there is that people insider trade because people that are in positions to do it, it's just not that hard. Like the information's out there. They probably have access to it already. And it's not that hard to go put on a stock trade. Which is why, for me, I don't think a lot of stuff is fixed because fixing a sport event seems so hard. Like the amount of people you have to organize and get involved without getting caught seems impossible. Totally. And then you need to know one of like the 50 guys in the world who's capable of betting like more than a million dollars on something, you know? Like, there's there's nobody that knows how to do that. Even myself, at some point, without moving the line 500 cents, like, I wouldn't know how to get a million dollars down. You know, unless it was some, unless there was 500k limits at some place. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm not going to say it doesn't happen because, like, very clearly history has shown us that people find ways. But in like the major leagues, I would think it's almost non-existent, especially because what player or coach is going to be incentivized to participate? Like, they are making so much more money. Like, you know, every time some random major league pitcher pitches well, he makes himself like hundreds of thousands of dollars in EV. Um, Some of the lower level college basketball, it's definitely possible because it's, I mean, if you really knew, like you could probably move like mid five figures on some game and like 
these games are on TV nowhere and there's seven spectators and it seems like you could fix one, but I also just don't think it happens that often just because like we said, like it'd be really hard. Like how are you going to randomly get access to all these college players? And like, you just need it to go so right and keeping it quiet, both in the betting markets and just among people would be impossible. So you're a fairly big baseball fan, is that correct? Is that your favorite sport to watch, or are you more of a college basketball guy? No, I mean college basketball is like a is a forced servitude. Okay, so baseball <laughs> is kind of like your main thing that you like. I mean, I like yeah, I like baseball a lot. Um, what has your experience yeah, I mean, I, been like betting the MLB? Because you are someone that wins at other sports who is for sure as smart, if not smarter, than the other people beating the MLB, but you have less experience betting the MLB. What has been betting MLB like for you so far? Yeah, so I mean, I beat player and like game props at a pretty high clip for a while, and I like still bet them, but the market's gotten a little better. Um. I tried beating like just regular MLB lines for a little while and just failed. Um, and my stuff just wasn't good enough. I wasn't beating closes. Uh, and so I quit after kind of a short attempt at it, but market seems really good. Um, this is going to be a surprise to no one. It just seems like so many of the, baseline calculations that you would make in a model have been priced in for like not a little while for like 10 or 15 years. Um, and that player evaluation stuff has just gotten so good that uh, any game where like the variables are not crazy, where like we have a decent sample size on all the players and the ballpark has been around for a couple of years and like nothing is weird. It just seems like someone has that information better than me and knows how to factor it in better. Um, I know that there are some people who bet baseball who have told me that like their edge now exists in that players with short histories are very tough to project still. Um, and they can sort of just get enough edge to scrape by that way. Uh, but other than that, it, yeah, I mean, I, I'm eventually going to take a swing at it again at some point, but the first time I tried, it was really hard and the market was just better than me. When you were watching baseball growing up, like what was your evolution? Like how sharp do you think you were at various ages and how, how sharp do you think the average fan is at various ages? Cause like I've never really liked baseball. I find it very boring. Um, but I, I feel like most people that like baseball kind of fancy themselves, oh, I'm a stats guy, or, oh, uh, you know, I know the numbers, or baseball is kind of a mathematical game. I feel like a lot of the fans are like that. Are most fans as dumb as in other sports, where they're just like, oh, he won, like, oh, this guy is clutch or whatever? Or are they actually a little bit smarter than other sports? Do you think most baseball fans, like, could kind of get on board with the advanced metrics and the, like, betting angles that people talk about? I think the baseline's higher, so it's a weird comparison because 
like your baseline NFL fan has to know nearly nothing about statistics. Like, I think that's like the general public just knows almost nothing other than like the stat line statistics, which is not true for baseball. It's just advanced metrics have been around for so long um, that like most solid in-depth baseball fans like know some sort of advanced statistics. But the problem is now, I mean, war wins above replacement is what, 15 years old now. So knowing that doesn't really make you that informed, you know, like there, it just, there's other stuff out there now. Um, I don't know. That's a, a tough question. I think the average baseball fan is probably more informed than the average other sport, but you get more people that are super confident that they are on the, like, I know math, I am informed side that probably aren't, if that makes sense. Yeah. Are there any totals betters that you respect a lot in the market, specifically totals? (laughs) Is this question getting at something? I'm just Um, wondering if there's anyone who's like a specialist in totals that is a great handicapper and makes millions betting specs. <laughs> oh, all right. It took me a long while to get around the bend there. <laughs> um, is there anyone that if you wish, yeah, I, I, they could I know, bot I know that you're getting, all you're getting my great total plays <laughs> into my account? You're, you're getting get it, Zilbo. I'm trying CLD, to under- This glorious edge. I'm trying to figure out how I want to approach. So I think like I have trolled him a lot on my Twitter account, but this kind of goes into like why I had, I eventually got a sports betting Twitter account a couple months ago. Like I think it's funny that like people that troll people on sports betting Twitter, like it is a completely selfish act. I think a lot of people try and make it out to be this, like altruistic defense of the everyman. And it's just so not that like I troll Zilbert because I'm sitting there giggling in my living room when I do it. Like it makes <laughs> me laugh. Yeah. Like I think it, it's kind of funny. And so like, that's the part of it that I think is kind of silly is well, like when you troll someone, you're just doing it because you think it's funnier because like a little bit, you want to show you're smarter, you know? Like there is definitely totally. 10% of it that is that for me. Totally. Like I yeah. am on the lowest end of the totem pole of sports betting Twitter right now. Like no one really knows who I am. I don't win at anything that complicated. Uh, and like part of it is, you know, protecting my equity a little bit. Like I got to tweet at the guys that, that don't really do anything good. Um, and part of it is it just makes me laugh. So um, the Zilbert post, the Zilbert one that you did was like the funniest tweet I've ever read. So <laughs> I got to give you credit there. When Time and C gave it, I accidentally clicked the $25 button instead of the 500k one. <laughs> do you yeah, think I mean, that Zilbert like, actually bet? Do you think he even bets $50 in a Bodog account? Or do you think it's zero? It's the same thing either way, like, isn't it? You know? Like, yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 yes, I think he probably does bet like a little but i don't know like giving him this much attention is like you know this is it's him winning like when i tweeted him and like troll tweet like he got me (laughs) 
because like I'm into the game and he's not, but he's yeah. It just the that's why I also find it funny when like all of these people tweet at like people that are very very accomplished betters who like have made a lot of money doing this when they like tweet at Eddie Walls or Rass or whoever, like they might be right. I'm not saying that those people are wrong in any way, but my thought is always like, what's the end goal? Like you're doing this, why? To like protect people who might have the misfortune of buying a service? Like that's not why you're doing it. You're doing it because <laughs> you want to prove you're higher on the totem pole and that's fine, but yeah, it's not mince words. Totally. I mean, whenever I see these RAS discussions, I'm just like, Okay, so RAS likes selling picks. The buyers like buying picks. The people that don't buy picks like not buying picks. And the people that don't sell picks like not selling picks. Okay, cool. Like, we're all doing what we want. Perfect. But for whatever reason, that is, like, some big controversy amongst everyone. Like, you you fit into one of those four, and you're probably doing what you want. You know? <laughs> I don't yeah. really understand what the disconnect is. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same as those people who are like, listen, I'm just going to say this, like 99% of sports bettors lose. I'm just out here to tell you that. It's like, no, you're out here to say like, yeah, I'm the 1%, everyone. Look at me. Yeah, totally. Um, okay, so let's go to um, having high versus a low adjustment models. Explain yeah. what you mean by having adjustment models. How do you kind of like, how do you bet on the stuff you bet on at a high level? yeah. So I think there's there's like a lot there's people who do this a lot of different ways to say it very obviously but I think there are some people that do just hit a button and come up with a fair I am certainly not that um I think I have a pretty good amount of domain knowledge about a lot of sports that I bet on and so I'm just going to try and use that in ways that I can't like 100% model all of it. You know, like if I know that some coach does some insane thing, like I'm going to try and model it for sure, but you're never going to get that hundred percent correct. So like, I guess like a good example would be, let's say I know that some college coach when they're way ahead in games like he really likes to slow it down and play really slow and grind it out and a lot of them do that but to various degrees but let's say there's one guy that's super extreme you're going to try and model that but you're not going to ever be totally 100 percent including that right because some games they'll be ahead some games they'll be behind be behind or whatever so in that particular game like I am going to probably try and make a really makeshift distribution, send out that game, you know, a thousand times or whatever, using something really basic like Excel and kind of try and see like just for that game, what is my adjustment to this total versus I would love to have a button I push that just includes that for every game in a model. But I think that's really hard to do if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. And I think college basketball is tough because there's so many games every day that it really discourages the approach of like, I'm going to specialize in all these games and I'm going to really like make sure I know everything about the game before I settle on the number. You like want to do the opposite of that, but you need to do it, you know? So it's kind of tricky. Like I find myself putting up some number and I'm always missing some key bit of info, but 
you can't just spend like 10 minutes looking for info in every game because you'll take it'll take all day long you know yeah and yeah that's that's basically what i'm getting at is that i am like not a proponent of you can't model everything you absolutely can but it just takes a huge time investment to include some of the stuff you gain from watching and following um so yeah i mean i'm never just gonna i think a lot of people are gonna do it where like they're just gonna have their model spit out 4.3 but they don't like they kind of think that seems low so they'll adjust it to five kind of thing and that's never how i'm gonna do it i always am gonna be like well the reason i think it might be five is like this team's been a little better on offense lately and they just got back some guy who is bad but can make threes well and maybe that's helping a little bit so i'm gonna try and update an input to a model and then still just trust the spit out number yeah yeah that's tough i mean i was like talking to that earlier i was talking about that earlier today um where there's an advantage to like throwing everything you can into a model because you get to like learn a lot from a from a diverse source list but it's also hard because the more complex your model gets the harder it becomes to like manually adjust stuff um and manually adjusting is a very key element. You know, I think about the way that I bet on golf. It's so much different than the way I bet on anything else because it's almost entirely subjective, you know? Like, there's baseline rankings and stuff that everyone has, which are everyone knows how to do. But there's also, like, pretty much entirely subjective stuff that you can change. Um, and being able to change the inputs is pretty powerful, I feel like. Yeah, the old bias-variance bias trade-off. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a plus EV type pod right there. <laughs> yeah, bias variance sure. trade off. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's too busy figuring out how he's going to capitalize on the next market crash, which is imminent. Right, you got to buy some VXX. You know that thing that you pay three percent to own. <laughs> Why buy the futures when you can buy VXX? Um, yeah, for those who don't know, there's a lot of products in the financial space. Um, like the VIX, which you might hear talk about. It's called the Volatility Index. I know a fair bit about it. And they have futures on what it'll be in the future. So you can bet on it. Almost infinite money. And there are products, because it requires a lot of capital to get an account where you're allowed to do that, you can't just like get that for free on TD Ameritrade. You know, you might need to have 100 grand in the account or you might need to apply for a permission or something. Um, so there are these other products that are just inherently negative EV. You know, they're doing something you're not allowed to do and charging you for the privilege. And sometimes you'll see people recommend trades on stuff that it's like, I don't have any opinion on whether this trade is good or not versus mid-market. What I have an opinion on is that I could recreate the same trade for cheaper. You are just like an idiot. You like have done the most expensive way to put this trade on. And that's the same sort of thing where it's like, if you bet the Rockets minus three and it closes six, like, are you the sickest better ever? Well, maybe, but what if you bet three minus 115 at Bookmaker for five grand and like Pinnacle had minus three minus 106 for six grand blue circle? So like just getting the better price can almost matter as much as the handicapping and in sports betting way more than option trading, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, what should what we go to next? About? Should we go to sport domain knowledge? Yeah, that's kind of what we were getting into before. How is your basketball knowledge? Because we used to play basketball together, and you're not the strongest player I've ever played against. Wow, call out. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
Hey, I didn't say anything about bad or good, just not the best I've ever played against. <laughs> so like third best, you think, or you were you were around <laughs> I'm a the terrible best basketball in the games player. we played. I'm a terrible basketball player. Uh but a pretty bad athlete all around, so uh I mean, I think domain knowledge doesn't always have to be like like there's just not that much about basketball in general that you need to know. But for like college basketball, there is no end to domain knowledge because there's so many different programs, so many different coaches, so many different players. And there are just kind of endless tidbits there that are actually really helpful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always find it funny. Like I, you know, I don't, I'm not like, I don't love watching, you know, Mississippi Valley state play Alabama A&M on a grainy feed on some random Thursday night. But I do occasionally do it because, like, occasionally I do pick up stuff from that that I can then use. Um, totally. So, yeah, I think it's just funny that there's a lot of people out there who talk about, like, oh, how can analytics be bad? It's just more information. Like, you're just getting more information to help you make a better decision. But then a lot of the same people will tell you that, like oh like watching the games you bet on like why would you ever do that and it's like well it's not because i like want to or love to like i do enjoy watching sports but i do it sometimes because i am not the best modeler in the world so i need to make up for that in some way and having a very intense domain knowledge is the best way i can think of to do that do you think it's possible to have that in more than one sport i would say that you have that in college basketball can you also have it in baseball or is it only possible for one sport? No, definitely not. I mean, you can have it in, I think as many sports as you want to give time to. And some of the people who are like, like I imagine Rufus talks a lot about not having that much domain knowledge, but I don't is think that that's before or after the golf lines are set. <laughs> uh. I, I don't think that's because he doesn't want to. I think he's making like a time effort trade-off calculation there. Um, but some people are like, I think trying to play a part by saying like, oh, like I don't ever watch the games. Like I just bet on it. And I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's the way I have, I have chosen to kind of make up for not having like the end all be all model. Yeah. It's tough. I feel like, um, after the fact, the last few months, I've been reflecting a lot on the college basketball season. You know, I didn't make very much money, had a lot of CLV, had a lot of bets I thought were very good. And when you don't know a lot about the sport you're betting on, there's always that risk of adverse selection where in golf, I know I'm never getting adverse selected because I know more about golf than anyone that's betting. But in basketball, I might be betting on some team because I'm quantifying a player wrong or... I think that this situation is worth the wrong amount because I just don't know the spot well enough. So it's really, really hard to bet stuff at the end, like in the last hour of betting, if you don't have at least adequate market knowledge. Like if you have, if you're average plus, you know, 75 percentile or up, then yes. But if you're not 75 percentile in terms of qualitative knowledge, um, it's just really hard, you know? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And again, I hate to keep doing this on every point we bring up, but definitely something that I got lucky to learn through options trading. Because when you start options trading and they ask you, like, you've built your first 
set of tools, like what is the best trade? And you pick like the super adverse selected, like fishy kind of stuff because you don't know any better. Whereas someone with experience is going to look at that and say like, this, like this would be a good trade if it were wrong by, you know, 10 points. But the fact that it's wrong by 20 is a little weird. It means there's another participant in the market who's good, has a lot of money and probably has a strong opinion. Even though the stock market is a lot more popular in public, it's still in a sense like there's less info in it and the information range is a lot lot wider amongst the crowd where like people can be acting on completely different sets of information, I feel like, Um, where you get those sorts of disagreements where stuff can be way off. Because if something is way off in a sporting event, like it's probably not fixed. And even if it is, it'll probably push a lot more. You know, stocks can get into that area where it's like, oh, this option's just so high. Like, there's clearly something going on here that I don't understand. I'm just going to move on. Yeah, and I wouldn't, I'd say, I don't know if the information's less. I think it's just harder to get. Like, sports information, it is many people's jobs to get you information. It's a whole industry of, like, publishing sports information. And finance doesn't really work like that. Like, there are some companies whose job it is to sell information to very professional trading firms or hedge funds, but even they can't get inside information on companies. Like a beat reporter is following the team and knows the players and so on and so forth. And that just doesn't ever happen in finance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things too, where like to work really hard on finance, you have to like just either love money so much that you're like, fine grinding all this stuff that is like so boring or for some other reason you're just like obsessed with how different companies interact but that wouldn't even make any sense because if you were really interested in like 3m's business or procter and gamble's business or apple's business like you're probably not interested in netflix's business or google's business you know like i don't even think it would apply to multiple of them so I feel like in sports, you can get more interesting analysis because just people like working on it. You know, people don't want to do interesting stuff with options. The only stuff you're going to get that's interesting is by mega geniuses who like win the Nobel, who are common sense idiots, you know? So that's all the sports, that's all the options content. Whereas the sports content is like people that have done a lot of work. It's for the common sense, but like don't have any of that advanced knowledge. Yeah. To be fair, I think you probably do have the binary aspect of sports to thank for that. Like the, the end result of everything is just so relatable. Whereas... Totally. If things were more liquid and you could bet on like everything and put on like a portfolio of like, you know, I'm short the 30s, I'm long the 10s on like how much Lafayette is going to beat Bucknell by, you know, like that could be pretty interesting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, more liquidity and options is always sounds good in sports betting markets, but it just seems like what incentive would anyone ever have? Okay, so what are you doing now? What's like what's the goal for the next few years? What's the plan for time and see? Um working on so it's always the weird trade off of working on bettering like acquiring new skills and bettering models I already have that work pretty well versus building new revenue sources. Um, so I'm 
kind of working on new stuff right now while there's not a lot going on. Um, working on tentatively some golf and college football stuff, but I mean, who knows uh, where that'll lead? It might lead nowhere. And then, uh, like WNBA is back in a month, so I'll be betting on that, and I'm gonna better the stuff I have to get it ready to go. Um, but I mean, you know, we'll 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 see what happens. It's kind of a weird time to be. How certain a is it pro w- sports better? How certain is it that the WNBA will come back? Is that like for sure happening in one month? I think they agreed to a deal. So it's as certain as anything is where right now it could all get shut down again. Cause there's like, obviously the Florida coronavirus case numbers don't look great. So it's happening in Bradenton, Florida. So that is always up in the air, but there has been an agreed upon deal to the best of my knowledge. Bradenton, Florida, notable golf town. That's where they used to have the, uh, <laughs> one of the academies, the David Ledbetter Academy. Well, I think this the WNBA is playing their entire season at the IMG Academy, I believe. So yeah, that's another one down there. Um, I actually yeah. knew a kid who he was two years older than me in high school. When he was in seventh grade, instead of going to regular school, he went to the um, the golf school down there, where you like play golf for six hours a day and go to school three hours a day type thing. Like you're still going to class and stuff. And he ended was up that being like the really, Hank really Haney smart. Show? Hank Haney has a different one in South Carolina, but there's also one in okay, Florida. Because there was a show um, about it on the golf channel. Right, where there was this kid, actually, Max Buckley, who played at um, SMU, who was pretty good and is like kind of still trying to get on the tour in the metropolitan New York area. But um, yeah, he was pretty good, and that show was solid. I mean, Haney's weird because he taught Tiger, and when he taught Tiger, Tiger was like probably the best he's ever been. And he hit it amazing, you know? He probably got pretty unlucky with the putting because his putting stats were fairly low. But a coach is almost not influential at all in that regard. Um, And he hit it so good. And Haney seems so solid with his knowledge. But then he did the Barkley thing, and Barkley didn't even get better, which seems insane. And then he like hosted the show and like said all that insanely racist stuff about Korean golfers to where like, what is that guy's deal? Is he like, he just knows a ton about golf and also is like a crazy racist talk show personality. <laughs> is that his cross section? When did Haney coach Tiger from like what year to what year? Probably like 2006 to, to okay. 2000 and uh 12 11 something like that okay and, the, and then he took the a point break for a while and he to... took sean foley for a while um yeah but when he played with haney he just was he was amazing you know he was unbelievable he never finished worse than fifth in an event this was like the after u.s open knee surgery years right when like he came back and just won everything but didn't win yes. majors yes there was a lot of that where he won everything and didn't win any majors um but I'm I'm pretty sure Haney coached him before the U.S. Open too. I thought. Um, but yeah, he started teaching him around 2006. It looks like I can't find the exact okay. year, but before the U.S. Open, um, and also after, and he was good, you know. But yeah, also kind of crazy. 
a, a deep dive into the psyche of Hank Haney. Uh, I, where was that on my uh, podcast outline? I'm trying to look for it. <laughs> <laughs> we can get into more uh, golf instructors if you want. I've got a pretty uh, decent knowledge there. Do you have, you have golf instructor rankings? I kind of do have golf instructor rankings. There's some that I kind of consider <laughs> better than the others. And here I was prattling around about domain knowledge. Look at you. <laughs> um, okay, what should we talk about? Should we go to gambling Twitter? That's kind of what that's what the people want, I feel like. We can. I feel like I kind of talked about it a lot already. I most of like I don't want to call out too many people because I don't know them really. Like I'm such a newbie to gambling Twitter. No one knows who I am. And a lot of the people who I think are like annoying are more successful than me. Um, but yeah, I just think like there's just a lot of it's just very disingenuous the intentions of some people. Yeah, but we I mean we can talk about it a little more. I think. Well, what do you want to talk about? Where should we take the podcast? We've we're an hour and forty minutes in. We can, uh, oh, man. we can go in whichever direction, you know, my afternoon's free. I kind of, <laughs> I did want to throw in there a little bit about like almanac game and like what that is and what it entails. Sure, Cause I feel like a lot of sports gambling Twitter doesn't really know and would definitely enjoy it. Oh, they for sure would enjoy it. And I would enjoy them playing <laughs> with me if anyone wants to. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make money here, man. I, I got nothing to bet on. Yeah, why don't you explain Almanac um, Game for the people? This is yeah. a game that happens, um, I'd say, at every trading firm in the world since, like, at least 1980. It's kind of like the game in trading. Yeah, so this is uh, what... I think what people who don't work in finance think Liar's Poker is, is actually Almanac Game. Um, so basically, it's literally that you pull a random fact out of an almanac is where it came from, but it can be from literally anywhere, like any fact from anywhere. Um, and then you basically make a market on that. So to give an example, I think a good one we did a couple months ago, you and I, and some people we know in trading, uh, it was the world record for a man, a world record in distance for a man on fire getting dragged by a horse. And like, it could be anything and whoever wants to comes and starts and makes a market and they would say 500 feet at 10,000 feet, basically meaning I will take the over on 500 feet or the under on 10,000 feet. And then eventually people will come in and tighten that market up. Like, obviously the answer is very likely included in 500 at 10,000. So people will come in and do like, okay, I'll be 2000 at 4000. And when the market gets tight enough, somebody will obviously like the other side, like, maybe you think there's no chance that it's over 2000. So you sell that person 2000. And the way it works is, you know, whether it's over or under, you have a preset amount for every bet or every contract. Uh, and so if the answer is 1500, the guy who sold 2000 wins, let's say the contracts are $20. Um, and then you can start getting into like deeper variations of this game where you don't do the actual answer. You do someone's guess at what the answer is so that you don't have to debate over the sources of looking up where it came from. You could do like Phil Shepard's guess at how many stories tall the Sears Tower is. Um, 
121. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> uh, although I can see it on my window right now. Let me see if I can count. Yeah. Uh, you know that we in in um, in grade school growing up in the Chicago area, there's a thing called Hustle Up the Hancock, where you go to the John Hancock building and you like run up the stairs and are timed. It's like a race up the Hancock. You like do the stairs. Um, something that I did when I was a youth. So what are we trading? What your time was? Or... <laughs> I don't remember what my time was, but it's like a hundred stories or something insane. You know, it takes forever. Seems high. Yeah. Um, and then the, the last caveat to the game is that instead of trading things binary, kind of like the sports betting market would work, you can trade things option style. So I don't know if this gets too far into how options work for people, but there's calls and puts. If you don't know how those work, I'll let you look them up. But if this horse, this man getting dragged by a horse while on fire thing, if the answer is 1500 and somebody buys the 1000 call, they basically make $1 for every foot that it's over a thousand. So 1500 would result in the buyer of that option making $500. So you could see the appeal to this as some crazy questions have really insane tails. Um, and so you can either make or lose kind of a lot of money doing this. Yeah, there becomes like a point where I feel fairly confident on taking like unders and overs at certain positions on the underlying. Like, uh, if, you know, I'm kind of 3,000, 7,000. I'll take like pretty big positions outside of that. But then you also have these things like, okay, well, there's definitely less than a 20% chance it's over 100,000. So like I'm going to sell a ton at 100,000 if it's like, you know, way less than five to one odds or whatever, four to one odds. Yeah. Um, and you can definitely like, <laughs> I'm thinking of, I think we were playing in our, like our group of trading firm initiates. And I remember at the time losing something like, if I had to take a guess, it was a very small number either way, but at the time it wasn't, it was like 1% of my net worth. <laughs> selling a call on someone else's guess of how many watches Donald Trump owned. This was before oh he was I president. This. this was way before he was president. Yeah. Yeah. And the person guessed like 1400 or something. I was like, there's no one on the planet that owns more than 50 watches. What are you talking about? But uh, it was a Chinese girl, if I recall correctly. She didn't quite know the culture. Yeah. She, right. So she, she was, she was a little, like, I don't think she completely knew as much about who Donald Trump was either. So she, we had explained it to her as he's just some really rich guy who like buys a lot of gold stuff. And so, <laughs> yeah, so I like that can definitely happen. And I remember like that was my introduction into you have to be really sure to sell options in this game. But if you are, you can make a lot of money. Yeah, there's been a couple. Do you remember any other like. Do you remember I mean, any other like crazy ones? I'm trying to think of any other like good stories we've had. I mean, there were times of like people trying to do physical feats at certain odds where people like had some skill that they hadn't told anyone about they were, and they were long conning. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel crazy. like that just kind of A couple of random things. Yeah. Nothing too crazy. I, re I mean, I wasn't there for it, about, but I heard about that story where, the question was, what was the longest line 
someone drew with a pencil. They like traced a pencil across a piece of paper until the lead ran out, ran out. And they went for like, you know, 14 miles or something impossibly long. And someone lost, you know, the max um, selling options on it. (laughs) I think at that, I think the management of the firm we worked at, I think was a story had to step in and be like, okay, like I don't want the debts between the people who work here to be like into the five figures. Yeah. And what's funny about that is um, when we first started working at this place, like a year in, um, I lost like $350 playing some game after work. And that was like usually the most anyone would lose in one day, you know, 350. It wasn't like a high stakes game or anything. And one of the higher ups of the company was on the email list. And he was like, oh my God, you guys are taking advantage of this kid who's only been here for less than a year. I, he lost $350. It's way too much money. And he like stepped in to try to intervene um, to try to save me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, at this point, would you, you probably wouldn't have been gambling on sports like that much more than that, but yeah, like, it definitely was a trivial amount of money. It was a trivial amount of money. In a game of the risk. most, the most edge I've ever had in any gambling game ever in this. What should we talk about next? All right. I don't have that much more on my agenda. Oh, okay. I have some questions for you then. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I have a question here from um, a previous podcast guest, Jordoga. Um, nice. And he says, let me pull it up. Do you handicap the three parts of college basketball? One non-conference two conference, three tournaments, the same, or is the process different between each of those three? Um, it's the latter. They're different. Um, and it's going to be how we talked about a little bit. Like it's going to be just tweaking inputs a little differently, but um, some of the biggest sports gambling blowout stretches of my not all that long career involved in not doing them differently. Um, I don't want to get into like way too much about it, but there is definitely differences in like, there's just differences in how the games are played when they're played that it make it. So you do have to adjust it a little differently. Okay. I don't know if, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, how, like, other than yes, how much more I can really say. Like, I'll. Gotcha. So you sure I'll just, discuss it with. Yeah. Okay. So it's just kind of. I mean, different. I think it's just quirks that you learn by. Like, there's no way to know that unless you just bet it and are wrong. Yeah. You know, like, I just bet it. My prior was no. I bet it. I was wrong. And <laughs> now I have adjusted to yes. What do you think the most beatable market is right now if you were trying to play like more than $5,000 units? Um, I don't have all that much experience playing more than $5,000 units, so I'm not 100% sure. Well, I just mean but, in, uh, a, uh, in a semi-real market, you know? Yeah, I mean, to me, this question is always hard because like getting, like moving that much money on anything is the game within a game. So like, you could spend a lot of your time doing some really small market like spring training or whatever, 
But instead of coming up with the best number, like you could spend a ton of time getting an infrastructure where you can move a ton of money on that. So easier. I mean, if you're really good at making connections and like working with people and then it's probably easier for you to pick a very low down the liquidity rung sport and find a bunch of partners and do it that way. But if that's not your game, it seems like both of the college sports are in a similar realm. Like college football is obviously a lot more liquid than college basketball, but there's some spots where the lines are a little soft early in the year and you can probably move huge on those. Uh, and then college basketball, like obviously beatable to around that number. Um, I think you've mentioned it before too. College basketball is interesting because the public data is pretty good and the process of building it into a final score number has been done by other people and you won't win just adopting those but they get you a long way down the path to start yeah it makes me think like football must be so much like over my lifetime of betting I've made the same amount in football and basketball, and I've had similar CLV in both, but I feel like my basketball is way better. And I think it's just because football seems like, there, you know, there's no Ken Palm. There's no like kind of baseline, this is what the score is going to be from some non, doesn't even realize gambling exists, you know, this Mormon blog. Um, the fact that that doesn't exist in football makes me think like if you knew what you were doing, it'd be way more profitable. And I feel like what I do in football is so bad that I can't believe it wins. But I think that the opportunity is like out there. You know what I mean? Like in, in learning a lot about how football works and like how the teams interact with each other. Yeah. It seems like it's just the more complex the game is, the more ways it's probably interesting to build it up into something that spits out a final score. Like the game of basketball on a high level has been solved. Golf, I think, is a little bit like that too. Where the inputs into what your score are broken down into some repeatable number have been solved. Now the way you come up with those inputs is like a little different, but for some sports it seems like it's not there at all. Totally. I mean... For golf, for basketball, for baseball, it seems there's some public number yeah. out there that is like pretty damn close to fair. You know, it's it's not great and it doesn't beat the market currently, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, for sure. And I think there are some numbers out that like they're like that out there for football, um, but I've never fully gone down the path of like using them to build a model. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. Yeah, I think football is just tough because just a lot of players, you know, a lot of injuries, a lot yeah. of news, a lot of, it's just more than college basketball. And there's less games, which is yeah. nice. And there's less games per week, but stuff moves faster and it's harder to find the info. And I don't know how much a safety is worth. Like, it seems like no one would be worth anything, but then sometimes there's like huge steam against some team. You know, the team should be 16, but there's an injury. Yeah. So the line's nine and a half. And I'm like, how can nine and a half not be good? And they lose by 27, you know? 
I mean, the the last like three minutes of conversation, the entire time in the back of my head, there is like somebody out there who knows all of this works, just laughing at this, like, oh my God, like, what are you guys talking about? You have no clue. <laughs> I know. I don't know though, because the more people I talk to, it seems like no one actually knows anything. Like I've, I have yet to meet anyone who um, seems like they have all the answers. Although we still have an invite out to Brett Favre 444, if any interest out there. I mean, it seems like some of your past podcast guests who bet football at pretty high stakes, like they know how these inputs at least go into a model and like what football stats convert into what, you know? Yeah. But maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I think so too. It's hard with the college football. There's just such limited data and a lot of the smaller conference teams, you don't know how good the backups are and hard to know. You know, you read press releases and you look at rankings and you think you know, but it's hard to fade steam in that sh- stuff because you just really don't know that well. Yeah, I mean, there are still, and this is not to disparage these people in literally any way, kind of quite the opposite, but there are still people that they don't really model anything. Like, they just kind of come up with a number by thinking about it and having a lot of experience, and they're still really good. So that's kind of kind of speaks to that point where like you could have a really good number, but some guy is just blasting the market three points. Like he kind of knows what the number should be. What is the feeling like in Cleveland right now? How are people, what's the, uh, what's the vibe right now? In terms of what? In terms of, you know, LeBron's in LA, baseball's <laughs> canceled. You know, the Browns suck. Like what's the yeah. vibe in Cleveland right now? So Kid Cudi hasn't think, had an album in a little bit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm still a fairly avid Cleveland sports fan. And I feel like kind of for an opposite reason from many people, like a lot of people on this podcast and just people I talk to in general, it's the opposite. They're like, I have to like try and not be a, like a sports fan anymore. It's so stupid. Like rooting for a team is dumb. So like I, I try not to. And I am definitely the opposite. Like it occurs to me daily how absolutely stupid it is to just like root for a bunch of dudes who are not going to be there in two years just because like the owners are from the place you're from. <laughs> but I try very hard to actually be uh, like a fan of hometown, hometown teams and alma mater and whatever, A, because it's fun, and B, because it's still just a good way to relate to friends from childhood and my parents and whatever. So, Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think that being a hometown, you know, hometown sports fan kind of guy is a, a, an admirable pursuit gotcha. uh, for everyone looking down upon it. I'm not looking down upon it. But, I'm just wondering how Cleveland is. <laughs> no, I know you are, but I... I um, I'm sure some people do. I mean, the only fan... Like, when I was in grade school and high school, my uncle had tickets to Northwestern basketball games which were actually quite fun because Northwestern played so slow under the great Bill Carmody that every game they played, especially when it was at home, was, you know, they'd be a four-and-a-half-point dog, but the game would be 58-55, and, you know, it'd be close the whole time, and they might win, and there were a couple upsets. So it was always really fun because the games were so close. It was just, like, a great thing to go to, but that was the only time I've ever really gone regularly to games um besides the cubs like i've mentioned before in the world series when we were working um in options trading just like watching 
um, the games during that World Series. So am I to understand that you were sweating Northwestern plus four and a half as a young child? <laughs> like what was, that is what that I wasn't. It sounded like. No, I wasn't. I was, it's just that those years were great because um, when I went to college, the college I went to, the team was really good. So they always won by a million. So you go to the game and they win by a million. They're favored by a million. It's not fun, you know, like they won, but who cares? At Northwestern, yeah. every game is like, it's war. You know, we're going to go either 5-11 and 11 or, you know, 4-12 and 12 in the Big Ten this year. we got to win this game. And every game was like 56-57. to 57. It was close, down to the wire. And you were always hoping they would pull the upset. So it was like a very exciting brand of basketball to watch. I was the young Allen Boston, if you will. Yeah, I got you. So <laughs> if we're getting back to your initial question about Cleveland sports, um, so I think it's... Like, people my age haven't had it as bad. Like, the general attitude you see of, like, the pained sports fan is, like, a passed-down thing. Like, people's parents who lived in Cleveland for a long time, like, actually went a large part of their life just, like, running bad being a sports fan. Just, like, seeing things continually run bad in bad spots at the end of games when the teams were good. So I think a lot of them grew up with just this, like, sad notion that, like, oh, well, like, we're never going to win. And, like, from an early age, watching a game with dad and hearing about, like, ah, they'll blow it in this spot somehow. <laughs> like, it's just a very negative. <laughs> uh, so I actually was, despite, like, you know, despite not buying into, like, there being, like, curses or anything like that, when the Cavs and LeBron won in 2016, I was actually, like, very overjoyed. And it was a definitively happy moment in my life. Nice. Um, what was it like when LeBron I mean, yeah. was talking with Jim Gray and he gave <laughs> him the news that he was moving, taking his talents to South Beach? So I was, I were you like it, on the screen like collapsing, just like why? So like I was wild. very sad. Yeah. So I look back at my senior year of high school as I think when this happened, and like this, that's probably like late high school is probably the height of like irrational fandom, where like you kind of totally. live and die with stuff as a sports yeah. fan. Um, and I remember that I had gotten together with a group of friends to watch it. And like the things that we were talking about were like, Oh, like, you know, there's a bunch of suburban kids. So like, Oh, like somebody's dad's uncle said like LeBron just bought like a wine and gold, like BMW from them. Like he's definitely staying with the Cavs. And it's just like the most ridiculous bits of information that probably weren't even true. Um, but yeah, I was pretty upset when that happened. Um, and then definitely rooted against him, like not actively, but was happy when they lost the finals the year after. And then like towards the end of college, I stopped caring, like I stopped living and dying with it and just like was kind of happy when my team won. But, uh, do you think that your college basketball knowledge would like translate to NBA? Have you thought about trying the NBA? Is that are those two different sports? Yeah, it's on or the. Is it... It's on the list. I mean, I've definitely I've never bet it, so it's hard to know. But I've taken some of the like just the process of pulling data and converting it into a number and pulled in NBA data, and it's like I it's just it's kind of nonsense. Like I think unless you are player level at this point you just have no hope and 
for college, I have some player stuff, but it's not, it's more of like a player archetype and not an actual player. Uh, and I just think in the NBA, like you just have no hope unless you are getting down to like a good player level kind of model. Yeah, that's what it seems like. You got to be pretty good at knowing all the players. Not quite as easy as the uh, the lower level markets where you can just kind of not really know people. <laughs> I mean, I was talking with Jordoga about this where like we don't really know the names of the players and there's some guy who's injured and we're not really sure how to quantify it. You watch a lot of college basketball. Do you think like you're better at quantifying Isaiah Livers or um, that guy in Cal State Northridge? You know, those sorts of like weird injury situations. I mean, I don't know exactly what you guys are doing. I know we, like you and I talk. I think I'm goodish at it. I don't know if I'm, I mean, I think definitely better than the market. I think the market seems to, the market seems to have an approach of, we're going to put out a hundred lines. And if there's like a really weird injury situation, like we'll just miss it. Um, I think I'm pretty good at it, but again, not like way better than just knowing that here's this guy. He's pretty good. Here were his stats. I can plug that into something super basic and get a ballpark of what his effect was. And I mean, Bart Torvik has some stats on, what his estimation of every player is worth. Yeah. His stuff seems pretty good. Yeah. I think he, I might trust his stuff over Ken Palm. I just, every time I hear Ken Palm on something, I just like him so much. And he just seems like this very good natured, well-mannered level headed guy that it's just impossible not to love him. Yeah. He is so level headed and so reasonable. He's just uber reasonable. Yeah. Okay, what else should we talk about? Like, I kind of think one if more Ken Palm ran... I was going to say, if Ken Palm ran for president, I seriously would just be all in on Ken Palm for president. Totally. He'd be like, why don't we do this? Why don't we... You know, he doesn't say controversial stuff. He just says kind of, like, boring stuff about basketball. That sometimes is like, oh, I never thought about that before. And then three days later, you're like, oh, yeah, duh. You know, none of the stuff is like... <laughs> you're ever thinking about that much about it. It's like very clear. He's right. When he posts stuff, usually. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always interesting to me too, how like someone can just, he can just love college basketball for like just that deeply and to turn it into, you know, that's just all he does. I know. I don't even get it. Like when I'm <laughs> Googling around for news, people are like, Oh man, I love college basketball. I can't wait for this. can't wait for that. I'm like, Man, I hate college basketball. I, I don't, and I make money doing it. And how do you guys like this thing? Yeah. Um, the one aspect I, I do find enjoyable is that in like major sports that everyone follows, the difference between teams and situations is just not that much. You know, like everyone's kind of in the same spot, like going for the same stuff. College basketball, the storylines and like the angles and all these other things that play are just they're kind of interesting, you know, it's just stuff that nobody knows about. And it's, there's just so many different permutations of how a team is put together. That part is a little interesting. Kind of also why college football is interesting, but you got to be a little deep down the rabbit hole to find that stuff. Cool. It's nice because you can like kind of outwork people in those markets. I feel like in some markets with better data and better info and longer histories, you are kind of, you can't possibly hope to beat 
the advanced quantitative people. But in college basketball, especially in college football even, there's still so much that needs to be manually adjusted for small sample sizes and weird situations that you can still kind of do well, even if you um, don't really know what you're doing quantitatively because there's just so much stuff to adjust. Can I ask you, like, you've been betting both college basketball and college football for what, like two years now? Yeah. And some of it is sort of similar in terms of the depth of the book. Like there's a ton of teams, there's a ton of random stuff to know. What do you find really different about those markets? I think I'm kind of unique because I approach the two markets in the same way where like they're basically interchangeable to me. I, um, I like spend a bit of time learning about them, trying to figure out what matters and then like trying to shove stuff into a number and making it good. So the process for both was kind of similar in building models. And then the process for coming to the number is the same. The adjustments are a little bit different. Like you have to follow different people to learn the, the new info, like the guys you might be missing. But for me, the way I make my bets and come up with my numbers is like identical between the two of them, um, which is not good. It's just that I know nothing about college football. I know nothing about football or basketball. So I don't really have anything to add there. I'm just trying to like incorporate everything and have a good number. Um, whereas in other sports, like golf and when I've tried tennis, um, it's much more like subjective where I'm just like kind of doing, there's not really a number, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I always think it's super interesting hearing how people in sports betting meet and interact with other people who are in sports betting. And you seem very good at making connections and talking to people. And but Yeah, then, I mean, I think that sports... Also, I mean, I think sports betting meetings are kind of weird where everyone acknowledges that they're not the best there's someone else out there that knows more than them or is doing better than them or has more info than them. And everyone wants more info, but they also don't want to give away info. So every meeting is like, you know, a back and forth of how much do you know? How much do I know? But I think kind of like one of the points of the podcast also is to, like there's some people that it can be useful to work together on stuff. You know, if you're not like end boss level, where you can kind of help each other out in a sense. Um, Cause no one wants to talk about their numbers that much. No one wants to talk about their process that much. I feel like there's something instilled in people that is like, Oh, everything is going to get fair immediately. Whereas I think of it more like, you know, there's a million people participating in the market that are on average X intelligence. Um, and that's how intelligent the market is. And as people get smarter, it'll get smarter. But as they get dumber, it'll get dumber. And as long as you kind of like stay smarter than the market, even if they're getting educated, it's kind of no big deal. Because I feel like I get better at all the sports I bet and all the stuff that I risk net worth on just get better continually. And I think I probably get better at a faster pace on the market. So like, I feel like I don't really mind the market getting a little bit smarter, you know, as long as you're not like giving away anything crazy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that sums up a lot of the questions in a concise form. I always am like a little tentative to just message people or DM people and be like, hey, what do you bet on? And like, what's your edge? 
but it seems like that's a good thing and you end up meeting a lot of people that way yeah i don't know it's weird because some people are like i don't want to give anything away but then other people are like oh here's what i was doing and then you end up talking to them all the time so i think it's kind of low risk as long as you acknowledge like hey if you don't want to say anything feel free not to but if you do like maybe we can help each other out a little bit or something for sure do you want to do something like dumb to end this, like certain sports gambling Twitter accounts as some TV show characters or something? Definitely. I was doing that the other day with uh, <laughs> with something. I forget what it was. What, which show do you want to do? Uh, I'm trying to think of one that we both have probably watched through a bunch. We've got definitely Entourage, definitely The Wire. Um, I don't know what else you want to throw out there. Shows I've seen a bunch. Um yeah, I like shows we both clearly have the 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 knowledge on. Seinfeld. <sighs> yeah, but I feel like you're getting into fringe characters too much. You know, like okay. well, let's just do Entourage how many people the wire. appear in more than. All right, I feel like the wire. Oh, you know what I was doing the other day? Actually, this is what I was doing. What? I was doing how good various people on gambling Twitter would be at Survivor. Because... I don't watch Survivor. <laughs> okay. Well, let's do gambling Twitter as... Um, I did that with Rick one time before. Gambling Twitter's uh, entourage characters. Well, I'm being unoriginal. Well, let's do The Wire. All right. Okay. You name the person, so and then we'll we talk got? about it. Who are the key gambling right. Twitter people? Oh, key gambling... So, people mentioned in this podcast, we can do both Rufus and Jeff Ma. Who do we got? Okay. Rufus and Jeff Ma. Okay. This is kind of a tricky market. Um, yeah. The one that came to mind was Lester Freeman for Rufus. <laughs> but I feel like Lester Freeman's a little bit... Um, he's like a little too He's sharp. like seen it all a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's like super sharp, but also like... The idea that he is sharp, but he lets this persona that he's trying to play like get in the way of any real advancement kind of <laughs> gets like gets there for me. Because Rufus is obviously super sharp and has accomplished anything you'd want to in this business, but he like feels the need to just play a part on Twitter. Yeah, I feel like he's kind of like Prezbaluski, where he's like saying these very, very simple things, like they're groundbreaking. And kind of everyone with a brain is looking at him like, yeah, that's kind of like a simple thing. I'm I'm on board with you, but I'm not sure why you're saying it. Okay, that makes sense. I feel like we've got to have a really good one for Bunk. There's got to be someone who's just like seen it all and is bitter and is just like, listen, that's the way it fucking goes, man. <laughs> um, well, I've said this before, but I think McNulty is SIBO because he's kind of, <laughs> he's kind of, Boston so E, Irish Catholic E, um, crazy drunk E, where I think he's just McNulty. <laughs> you know, lot like kind that of makes... could do anything. A wild man, if you will. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Who is um, um? Who's Cedric Daniels? Who's Captain Jack? Captain Jack Andrews. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I don't know him as well. You seem to have some some disdain for his uh, his ties to Don Best. I have no disdain. I just find his um, his thoughts to be nonsensical and idiotic. Yeah, not for <laughs> him. I'm saying, but just for his position on Don Best. I don't even understand it. 
the position was we have something that's terrible. I'm glad there's only one. Um, whereas I would rather have two so that I could choose between the terribles and even better, yeah. maybe three or four. Um, but I'm just, you know, one of those guys that wants more options like that. He kind of seems like a little bit of like an old hat. Like he's been there. He's seen some stuff. Um, he almost strikes like me as like level. prop Joe a little. Does that make sense? Like yeah. prop Joe for him is like, he's seen I mean, some stuff. He's been around. He's still not at like the absolute top of the game, but you know, he's involved in a bunch of stuff. Who is like Barry horse. There's gotta be somebody. Um, let me think. he kind of seems like D'Angelo a little bit, right? He's a little bit like D'Angelo because he's very like, it doesn't have to be this way, you know, like type of guy. But he's well, he also was, a like, bit rising more... through the. Yeah, rising. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't know. Who would he be? Like, the reason D'Angelo makes sense to me is he's, like, rising through the ranks. He was kind of becoming a part of, like, the fraternity. But he just couldn't get out of his own way, <laughs> exposed himself, and then there was nothing left to do but give him the old hit, you know? Right. Spoilers. Like, Who's Orlando? <laughs> Orlando, that's the good one. Um, I feel like I don't want to offend people that I kind of like. Um <laughs> Um, not like Orlando's kind of like a smarmy character, and this guy is not like that at all. So I hesitate to say this, but Joey Isaacs reminds me a little bit of Orlando in that <laughs> I feel like he's always got like he's, he's got scheming. like something that you can get a part of, right? You know, and it's like, it's like outside of this other thing, but like Orlando's thing that he got D'Angelo involved in obviously was like kind of a, a sham and not good. And Joey Isaacs is not like that, but just right. like the pulling you aside in like a crowded room being like, Hey man, like listen to this thing I got going on. I feel like it's very similar. Who is the, um, who is Favre on the wire? Yeah. I mean, there's only two choices, right? He's either gotta be, he's gotta be Avon or Stringer, right? Um, I think probably, although, there's other people it could be, I guess. I mean, I think prop. I'm, I'm. I think prop Joe's kind of an interesting character, kind of a compliment. But you kind of gave it. Um, it seemed like a not that way. So maybe you don't think of it. That no, way. I mean, I meant it that way. I mean, it seems like Captain Jack Andrews. I don't know him or know anything about him. I've never talked to him. But it seems like he's a fairly accomplished better and has made a living doing this for a long time, which is something to be sort of sought after, you know. Like, the way The Wire is told, he's not, like, at the absolute top of the game, but he's been a solid earner for, like, a long time, which is to be sought after. Yeah. So I have a question here. Um, If there... If so much of the edge is gone at the end of the season for college basketball in terms of, you know, these teams are playing twice a week, there's been a million lines, they get put into place... You know, maybe there was a good line last week, but now the books know that they set the line two points short, and they know about this injury because it got bet. And it seems by the end of the season that everything is kind of fair. Um, how are you adjusting 
at the end of the season. Is the model at the end of the season fairly similar to the beginning of the season? And there's just less edges? Are there more edges? Um, are you like questioning the edge you generate? And is the CLV better or worse? What is your like end of season approach? And like how do things change as the season finishes? Um, so a couple things to pick out of this question. The end of the season, the lines are definitely more correct, but it's also sort of a battle of at the beginning of the season, the lines are much more wrong, but you could also be on the very wrong side. So the market is more inefficient, but you know, you could be the one not realizing some team is playing way faster and some total, like, does that make sense? Like, of course the lines get more efficient, but you're not always on the efficient side. Um, I think the lines do get better, but there's always some, there's always some stuff that makes the end of the season bettable. I think just the same stuff is just teams adjust and play differently and play weird styles or certain injuries and rosters look way different than they did at the beginning of the year. Um, I'm probably betting less at the end of the year. I can check and make sure, but I'm pretty sure I'm betting fewer games just because the market does get better. Um, but yeah, I mean, my stuff's also better. I think that's something that other podcast guests or other sports betting people have gone over is that, yeah, at the end of the season, it's it's kind of a race. Like your stuff, your model is getting better as lines are getting better. So you're more confident in your number, even though the market number is better. So I am probably betting a little less. My edge is probably a little lower, but it's not so significant that it's going to drastically change anything. Yeah. Yeah. The last four sense. years in college basketball... The last four years in college basketball, there's also been like rule changes every year. So not so much with sides, but if you're betting on totals, even if stuff's way wrong in the beginning of the year, you kind of have to wait in cautiously for a little while. Cause I did a lot of research and I tried to incorporate some of this stuff well, but you're never a hundred percent sure. Yeah. It was definitely hard with all the rule changes. I mean, that seems like something that will not continue. I feel like they're kind of done with the changes. Or do you think that they're going to keep them coming every year? I mean, it's hard to know, but the NBA seems like they want to keep tweaking the game constantly, and that just flows through everything. So, you know, NBA moves their three-point line back again because somebody complained that there's too many threes or something, and it's only going to be so many years before college does it too. Yeah. Do you think that and that I can think, be a source of edge at like the beginning of seasons, like teams that are going to do worse or better on rule changes than others? Or is that just something that's a tiny bit of the picture that you have to adjust for in an okay fashion? Definitely could be a source of edge. I think I've been, I have never done it in that fashion. My approach has always been, I think this is how I can apply the rule change across basically all the teams or most all the teams instead of trying to single out teams that are going to be way more affected. But I'm sure that there are angles to be played there. Yeah, I've thought about that before where 
just like knowing some of that stuff would be really useful and it's kind of inherently difficult as one person in college basketball because there's just so many teams. Yeah, I mean, it's fairly obvious, right, that as the shot clock shortens, it will change how possessions look for teams that take the entire shot clock versus teams that don't. Um, and are you saying anything about any Tony Shaver-led offenses here, or is this <laughs> agnostic on that point? Tony Shaver, the uh, number one coach in Allen Boston's rankings. <laughs> right. One of the best we, of all there's time. There's some good. There's some good Boston content to be discussed on college basketball, probably because the guy actually does know a lot, like probably more than me about these programs. But he seems to never make any effort to test and see if those things are true. If that makes sense. Well, like it to seems Penn. to me like Alan Boston. <laughs> it seems to me like Alan Boston watched. 100 possessions of Tony Shaver offense, liked what he saw, it ran smooth, like they probably got some easy layups or whatever, and off of that, decided that Tony Shaver was the best offensive coach he'd ever seen and needed mountains of evidence to overturn that opinion. I think even further than he's ever seen, I think he's the greatest coach of all time. I think that that's definitive. <laughs> <laughs> Given how high he ascended at Vermont, like... You just don't ascend to those sorts of heights without some sort of, you know, extraterrestrial knowledge of the game. Like in order to get to like 180 in the Ken Palm rankings, it's it kind of takes something, you know. To be fair, it kind of does because some of these schools have no hope of getting above a certain level. But the guess, best part that was is that good point. the guy they the guy they got to replace him way overperformed last year. All right. And they were arguably <laughs> don't bring that the up. guy they brought in. <laughs> the guy they brought in got a transfer from Wisconsin, which is a big get for a school like William and freaking Mary. And they were arguably better than pretty much any of Tony Shaver's teams. What's funny is I went to, um, I went to high school with a kid who played for William and Mary under Tony Shaver he was like the fourth best player on our team, but he was really tall. So he got D1 attention. Yeah. And uh, they were just terrible every year. And I remember checking. This was back before I knew Tony Shaver was the great basketball line that he is. But um, they were about 250 every year, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what, what can you do? Sometimes greatness is just unrecognized, you know? <laughs> yeah. I kind of like to think of myself as a Tony Shaver type. Like I was trading for a while and nobody (laughs) wanted to give me a hundred million dollars to manage in the same way that no one wanted Tony Shaver, the greatest ever to coach their basketball team. I don't get it. You are kind of like the Tony Shaver of uh, (laughs) sports betting. (laughs) Okay. That's Um, that's very accurate. Are there any other things you want to talk about? Anything gambling Twitter related, anything Trolling related, Zilbert related, or you got, are we good? I mean, I think I've said everything I need to say. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. I think I went over stuff that everyone already knows a lot, but. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think it depends on what the person's looking for out of it. Some people listen to the podcast and they're like, this person was amazing or this person sucked. And I think it just depends how much you know about it. So if you've never heard about college basketball betting, it'll probably be interesting. If you know about it, it might be, but we'll let the people decide. The 50 listeners decide. We'll let the people decide. All right. Well, 
Thanks for having me on. Talk Good luck. See you on the on the pod. We will talk to you later. Thanks for. Yep.